For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Project Eden. Supposed to develop aging technologies Recording for use live. The but what else is going on? In a moment, we'll talk with Andy Jacobson, author of The Pentagon's Brain, next on Coast to Coast AM. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. Annie Jacobson, investigative journalist, author, writes about war, weapons, uh, national security, secrecy, and graduated from St. Paul's School and Princeton University. She's been a contributing editor for the then Los Angeles Times Magazine and noted author. One is called Operation Paperclip and the other, The Pentagon's Brain, an uncensored history of DARPA, America's top secret military research agency. Annie, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. Not a lot of people know DARPA. They hear the initials, but they don't even know what it stands for, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. How long has that been around? 1958 since. And what's incredible, George, is that this is the most powerful, most productive military science agency in the world and has been since it was created in 1958. And so few people know about what it's up to. Is it a black ops program, or is it generally pretty public to at least Congress? Well, it's public. Uh, it has a public face, but so many of these research agencies have a very deep history that is unreported and unknown about, and certainly parts that are deeply classified. They were created by President Dwight Eisenhower. What was the initial purpose? Well, you know, the way I begin the book is with this thermonuclear explosion. This is four years before DARPA was created. This bomb was called the Castle Bravo Bomb. I uh, interviewed two witnesses who were there during that just enormous weapons test. But the reason why I start the book then is because thermonuclear weapons is really why DARPA was originally created. Scientists and engineers created a weapon which we could not defend against. That is the heart of the military-industrial complex, to create something that the enemy cannot defend against. But, of course, the enemy ends up getting that technology, and then we're in that same conundrum that we can't defend against it. So DARPA was created as soon as the Russians launched Sputnik. It meant that they had taken the pole position in terms of science and technology, and they were much closer to that dreaded ICBM that could get a nuclear weapon to the United States. And so Congress threw a ton of money into what was then called ARPA, minus the D for you know defense, which came along during the Vietnam War. But it's the same agency. And the Russians are boasting now, Annie, that we can't stop if they launched a nuke against us. So we oh. can't stop it. Absolutely, and there was like panic and hysteria um, among the American population. Interestingly, President Eisenhower stayed very cool, and the public saw that as like a ploy 
I think in general he was a very level-headed individual, and he didn't see it as panic. He was slow and steady about science and technology, but that's not the way the public saw it. And so when then then Secretary of Defense McElroy, you know, went to Congress and said we need this agency immediately. Congress funded it with an enormous amount of money. Eisenhower was very supportive of it, and DARPA was off and running in the business of defending against nuclear weapons. Yeah, I've got to say, you know, spending nine years in the Navy and having a military background as well as my broadcast background, I am not opposed to having an agency that has got uh, a very special task at hand, and, 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 it's, and it's secret because I think to protect the nation, you've got to have an agency that is above everyone else in terms of technology and doing what they're doing. Absolutely. I mean, you've hit upon the key word here, which is revolution, okay? DARPA's job is to create revolutions in military affairs. It's called RMA, and it's Pentagon dogma. And, of course, a revolution is not a revolution without that element of surprise. So you're right, and that is the conundrum of DARPA, that you want to have the strongest science and technology agency in the world. And DARPA does its job extraordinarily well in that regard. I mean, we've never lost that top position in terms of military technology since the agency was created. Now, is there a danger, though, in having an agency like DARPA? Is it like a double-edged sword? It is, it is, and that is, you know, I start the book with the thermonuclear weapons. I end the book, uh, 500 pages later, um, with <laughs> just a little light reading, but, um, you know, it's, it's, I end it with the real question that came to me through a lot of these top scientists. They, the Pentagon calls them the Superman of science, science, the Jason science for scientists, for example, saying, asking the question that you asked, which is what, what is there a, what's going on now? What is that threat? And that threat, I believe, is artificial intelligence, is which DARPA leads the science and technology in, and always has, by the way. Because a thermonuclear weapon was this weapon that was created by American scientists against which there was no defense. But a nuclear weapon cannot launch itself. It requires a human. And now we're moving into this arena where it is Pentagon dogma to have fully autonomous weapons by 2038, okay? That is not a classified document I'm referring to, by the way. And when I say autonomous, I mean self-governing. I mean, you know, the cheap version of it is like holding up a photograph to a drone saying, go assassinate this guy and come back and report to me. That's autonomy. That's, and if, if that artificial intelligence barrier is broken by DARPA and we wind up with those kind of weapons, there is a real serious threat that those weapons could launch themselves. And if they do, if we get a robotics that have, a, you know, the kind of emotion that we're beginning to just see, at least from Hollywood's end, we could be in for one heck of a problem. I mean, if they begin to reason, and what if they, what if the Russian computers and artificial intelligence talks to the United States artificial intelligence, and they begin to either reason or develop something on their own. And, you know, the fear that you're bringing up is one that is raised by very smart, very uh, business-savvy people in this country right now, 
Bill Gates, Elon Musk, Stephen Hawking in uh, England, all saying, you know, we should not be creating these weapons that are fully autonomous. And yet, that is where the Pentagon is determined to go. And I came across some remarkable documents about how there's actually a lot of pushback within the Pentagon from commanding officers to drone operators who are saying, we do not think these autonomous weapons are a good idea. And what the Pentagon has done is now teaching robot ethics to its uh, staff to try and get people to come on board with this idea. You found a guy, Andy, who was a witness to some of these bizarre weaponry. Oh, I, I mean, that's, I write narrative nonfiction. So, you know, I write science for laymen, for regular people, including myself, and so that you can be engaged in the story and then understand this technology, which, you know, thrown at you with a PhD angle can be very overwhelming and hard to digest. So what I do is find witnesses um, who work on these programs, and then I tell their stories. And I, that's exactly how I started uh, the book, because right. there were two weapons engineers on that Castle Bravo test, and just hearing the stories from their own eyes is really remarkable. It, was it difficult for them to tell you things? I mean, weren't they scared of uh, any repercussions? Well, you know, no one shares classified information. I mean, these very brilliant scientists and engineers who have dedicated their lives to national security issues, so they're real patriots, um, they stay on top of the program's or at least this is my experience with the guys I've interviewed, they stay on top of the programs that as they're declassified. So even though, let's say they just become 85 years old, they find out, wow, my program from 90, 1954 has been declassified. Now I can talk about it. And then I get introduced to them through another colleague in this network of, of, of scientists and engineers and former spies that I've used to research all of my three books. Um, and then they're able to share that information, and I think more than anything, because they believe in this idea that the American public must stay alert and knowledgeable to, you know, the threats and also the weapons programs. What would you say today is our biggest concern with DARPA? I think the, the artificial intelligence program that we that we spoke about. Okay. You know, also here's another one, George, that is very you know, that's it's a double edged sword. The Pentagon is moving toward systems that are that are that couple animals and machines and they're called biohybrids. In the world of science fiction they're called cyborgs. But in true science fact, at the Pentagon and at DARPA, they're called biohybrids. And what that is is part animal and part machine. DARPA has already succeeded in creating a rat that can be steered by remote control but by implanting electrodes in its brain. And it's done the same thing with a moth, which is really remarkable because the scientists implanted the electrodes in the pupa stage of the moth, so when it was still a worm. And then it transformed into having wings, and those little tiny microsensors transformed with the moth, and then the DARPA scientists were able to steer that moth. 
Um, the moth only has a 90-day life cycle, so very quickly it was dead. But imagine following that idea through because DARPA is moving toward engineering humans for war. Now let's talk more about that, Annie, when we come back. This is scary stuff. Wow. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. Annie Jacobson with us. We're talking about her latest work, The Pentagon's Brain. She also wrote a book called Area 51, which was a bestseller, and, of course, Operation Paperclip. Annie, as we were talking about DARPA and some of the concerns that are out there, tell us more about these cyborgs and what you think could happen. Well, it's all part of the process, the Pentagon process, to have soldiers and civilians become comfortable with this idea of merging man and machine. It's called transhumanism, and it's this idea, those who are proponents of transhumanism say that it's inevitable that man will begin to control its own evolution by essentially augmenting itself with machines. So we can make ourselves smarter, for example, with brain chips, or we could make, you know, wounded, if you're missing a limb, for example, you could have a very advanced prosthetic. Those are uncom- who are uncomfortable with this idea say, this is pushing science and technology in a way that's dangerous and is ultimately leading us toward, here we go again, the, the hunter-killer artificially intelligent robot. Right, right. But, you know, on, on one hand, it seems incredible that you can develop technology where maybe you can make an artificial eye and somebody can actually start seeing again, a blind person. It's got some great applications. Oh, no doubt. I mean, I interviewed scientists down at the uh, University of California, Irvine, who have a limb regeneration lab. So they actually believe that one day man will be able to regrow limbs that have been lost in either war or, let's say, an accident. They really believe in this technology. They know it's, you know, 25, 30 years out. Um, But DARPA is willing to fund them. So this is called blue sky science. And you're absolutely right that the civilian applications are amazing. The military applications are extraordinary. I think, and the point I try to make in the book is, you know, Decide for yourself. Have a voice. Have a vote. Um, Because ignoring it or just thinking it's science fiction is a bit like an ostrich putting its head in the sand. You know, when, when we look at the technology that has come from organizations and agencies like DARPA, where do we stand compared to other countries? Are we way ahead of them? I was just mentioning the Russians claim we can't shoot down their uh, their missiles because they've got high technology. Where are we on the pecking order? We're, we are we are always ahead. We always have been since 1958. I mean. Not only that, when the technology emerges into the civilian sort of mainstream, the population, it's decades old. Let me give you an example. GPS. Um, the Clinton administration declassified something called select availability. That was the GPS technology that kept its accuracy from, from civilians. That technology is a DARPA technology from the late 1950s. I mean, it took them until the 80s to get it really up and running and fully functional. Think about how old that technology is. The Internet started as an idea Mm -hmm. at DARPA 
1962, the guy named Lip Lighter, who's called the Johnny Appleseed of the Internet. First it was called the ARPANET, now it's the Internet. So imagine where we are now. What will be revealed shortly is probably 25-year-old technology. Do you think they even thought of the ramifications of the Internet back in 1962 and what it would be like today? Well, the visionaries, I think, definitely did. Licklider, J.C.R. Licklider, who was this sort of eccentric, brilliant individual who came up with this idea, sent out a memo to his colleagues there at the Pentagon at DARPA, then called ARPA, that said, you know, he had an idea for something he called the intergalactic network, and that it was this situation where computers and humans were going to work together to create a library of the future. Well, that's kind of exactly what the Internet is. And he was born in St. Louis, too. <laughs> yes, he was. <laughs> He's no longer with us. It's a shame. Mm -hmm. he, he died uh, way too early. We would have mm -hmm. seen some incredible things. I think technology, and he is amazing. I mean, you can go out, take a picture with your smartphone, and send it to a friend of yours instantly. It just boggles my mind that we can do that. I mean, it really is the whole thing. The whole technology is moving so fast. DARPA is leading it. I mean, information technology at its core is a military idea. It all began at DARPA with this idea um, that command and control was so important. And, you know, think about this technology, George. Back in 1961, when Kennedy took office, the way to communicate that dreaded go, no-go command in the event of a nuclear launch, you have to use the red phone. Think about that. Picture it in your mind like that dial phone, okay? DARPA scientists determined down to the seconds the amount of time it took for a nuclear, uh, an ICBM to leave the Soviet Union on the launch pad and hit, New York, hit uh, Washington, D.C. 1,600 seconds. Okay, I don't think that's ever been really reported before. That's the number. Found it in the declassified DARPA document. That's 26 minutes and 40 seconds. Imagine wasting, what, 15, 18 seconds of that dialing a rotary yeah. phone? over and over again. Right? So this is how technology had its, you know, thrust so to speak, at the Pentagon. And then, of course, then we have Moore's Law, which is the idea that, that computer technology is doubling every year and getting smaller and smaller. DARPA is responsible for nanotechnology, which is the art of making everything smaller. And then uh, when the Berlin Wall came down, we started to have biotechnology. And now that's called bioinformation technology. If All you, DARPA if, creations. If you could look at a text message as a beam of light for every text message that was sent. Can you imagine those streaks of light that would be emanating on this planet all over the place at any given time? It's remarkable. I was at Google the other day talking about this book, and there was a, a poster up that said, we handle 10 billion text messages a day. Unbelievable. More people than on the planet. And they get to where they're supposed to go. Yeah, I mean, it is really... This is what boggles my mind. Yes. This, this, listen to this. How many wrong phone calls would we get when we had our old landline phones? <laughs> Remember? We'd get them all the time. Yes. I mean, How many is... people get wrong text messages from the wrong person? It doesn't happen a lot. That is a great point. I have actually never gotten a text by accident. Nor have I. 
I've gotten text messages I didn't want yes. from, you know, salespeople and that's stuff. That's a different story. Yeah. Yes, you, you have never texted me by accident. Never, never, but I no. probably will tomorrow morning. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it is amazing how fast this is going. Now, but you talk about DARPA wants to create a super soldier. What are they doing? Well, that's a, another, I mean, DARPA does just about everything, by the way. I mean, we could talk all night about these different programs, but the Super Soldier program, again, going back to 1985, when retired general, retired four-star general Paul Gorman got this idea of creating the, an exoskeleton for DARPA. And this is, of course, now known as the Iron Man suit, but it's been in effect all this time. And right now, it's gotten so advanced, it's called the Talos. Stands for Tactical Assault Light Operator Suit. It really is a kind of Iron Man suit, except for it doesn't fly yet. And uh, DARPA has teamed up with Special Operations um, and created this insane suit. I mean, it has full body ballistics, all kinds of embedded sensors, audio, visual, optic. Um, it has oxygen control. If a soldier starts to hemorrhage, it has hemorrhage controls. Oh, my God, it has 3D audio so that one soldier can identify where another soldier in its, in its network is just by that voice. DARPA has enlisted something like 56 corporations, 16 government agencies, 10 national laboratories, and I think 13 university laboratories all working on this suit for fielding in 2018. They're going to get it done, too. They'll, they'll get it done. I mean, can you imagine coming up against that on the battlefield? I know it. I know it. What about chips in soldiers' brains? Well, that's part of that, um, what we were talking about earlier. It's the, it's the brain-machine inter, brain interface. And, you know, when the war on terror was being fought by 2.5 million servicemen, 300,000 of them came back with brain injuries. And DARPA set about this program um, to restore the cognitive functioning, like so the guys that are having real serious brain problems. The idea is to implant a brain chip, also called a microcenter or a neural neuroprocessor. And they'll know where to implant it, I guess. Yes, in, in, in certain in different areas for different programs. For example, the one that's dealing with memory goes into the... Um, I'm not even going to say it. I'm going to destroy the word. But, yes, you're absolutely right. It goes into specific areas of the brain. And then um, the idea is that this will help soldiers. But many scientists I have spoken with, including the Jason scientist, the Superman of science, say, you know, this is a very bad and dangerous idea because it can lead to, and this is their word, not mine, you know, brain control. How do they attach the chip? To the little nerves in the brain. Well, they're so tiny. They're like very low power. By the way, these are most of these programs are in the clinical trial stage. So the hardware has been developed. And by the way, here's a rub for you. Most of the hardware is developed by Lawrence Livermore Laboratory, the laboratory that was responsible for those thermonuclear weapons mm -hmm. that set this all off. So they have a big program that builds the hardware. And then there are all, all these different organizations, including the National Institute of Health, that are going through these clinical trials to 
you know, work on the efficacy and the safety of these neural implants. Are they using it on people or monkeys? Well, my understanding is that they are using it on, on people, and I know of at least one program that had five uh, soldiers. There are also other programs where they use primates, but this is, we are right at that cutting edge time where this real breakthrough technology is happening. What happens if something goes wrong? What's the downside? Well, the soldiers I mean, die? Complete brain damage? What happens? DERPA is extraordinarily tight-lipped about this. I had 16 requests to interview some of the soldiers, the veterans who are involved in these programs, as well as the neuroscientists who are leading these programs, and DARPA denied all of those requests. So they are very tight-lipped about giving anyone access. I shouldn't say that. They're very tight-lipped from my position of giving me access, and I don't know of anyone else who has had access to, you know, the ground truth, as they say in the field. What the publicity truth is is a different story. What, what DARPA says what its press office says is, is, is one version of events, but I want to talk to the people, you know, that are actually working on these programs or being part of one. If you put a chip in someone's head and you have that capability of doing that, would you not also have the capability of kind of controlling them like a Manchurian candidate? Well, that's exactly the fear. And that's, I mean, I quote, you know, the Jason scientists, these scientists who have been working on these programs for the Pentagon since, since 1960. And again, they say this is this should, that the government should not proceed with these kind of programs because it could lead to brain control. So think of that moth I told you about that DARPA was able to steer by implanting the electrode in the pupa stage and letting it, you know, metamorphosize. Well, and that moth is now remotely controllable by DARPA scientists. So you don't have to stretch your brain very far to think of the analogy. The thermal nuclear bomb that you talked about on an island, mm -hmm. 15 megatons. Now explain to us how big that would be compared to Hiroshima or Nagasaki. Oh my God, 15 megatons of explosives. It was more power than all of the explosives set off in the entirety of World War II. In both war theaters, including Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And all the conventional bombs. All the Every... conventional weapons, yes, absolutely. Wow. In one concentrated area. And one of the guys I interviewed for the, um, for the book was in a bunker 19 miles from ground zero. Only time the Defense Department ever did that. Where they how would you know how far to go? Well, well they put that they built they built a very specific, incredibly you know thick concrete walled bunker, buried it in sand to see if someone could survive, uh, you know, a, a hydrogen bomb that close up. And it was, in essence, to design a bunker for the president, which then was designed. Nineteen miles out. Yes, yes. Well, the president's bunker was at Raven Rock, you know. Jeez. Now, what happened to that Marshall Islands when this thing was detonated? Well, the, there were more tests planned. Believe it or not, that was a multiple thermonuclear bomb test, but they couldn't de detonate any of the any bombs on that specific island because the radioactivity was so high, so they had to move a couple islands over. 
When I was a kid, Annie, we used to have these bomb shelter scares and these bomb scare runs in school where we had to get under our desks and huddle up and not that it was going to do us any good. But the Cold War really petrified a lot of people in those days. As it should have. Uh, It seems like we're going right back into that. Look, the thing that I find remarkable is that that 1,600-second, you know, time span from launch to annihilation, that has not changed. And truth be told, there is no defense against the thermonuclear weapon. The defense is political. The defense is, you know, mutual assured destruction or mad. So... The situation, the the threat level has not changed. It's just that there's a confidence that the world has lived with these weapons for that many decades without anyone going bananas, so to speak. Um, But, you know, then you have to ask, why introduce these new artificially intelligent weapons into the foray when there's more than enough destruction out there? Don't you think that mutual assured destruction has been the stopping gap from any kind of horrible war? Yes, I do, I do. And I have looked at it a lot. I've written about it in all three of my books. And I absolutely agree with you that, you know, but I think that that was certainly not thought out in advance. No one said, well, let's create these weapons and then we'll just, you know, decide to how to defend, how to defend against them politically by never using them. It was a sort of oh, my God, what have we created type scenario. I want to talk with you about drones when we come back uh, as well, Annie. The, uh, I bought my son. He's 33 years old, but I bought him a drone so he could play with it with his kid, his little five-year-old. And he, he said, Dad, of everything and anything you've ever gotten me, this was the hit of all time. Wow. I mean, like, yeah. it was like the Pied Piper. Sure. Kids were running sure. out of their houses sure. to look at it, to try to play with it mm-hmm. and stuff. And this was a little toy. Mm-hmm. The big stuff, the real stuff, is, it's got to be amazing. Yes. Well, you know, the drone technology began during the Vietnam War because John Foster, who was the man who all the DARPA guys reported to, his personal love of... Uh, model airplanes, remote control uh-huh. model airplanes. I remember those, so, yeah. Just like, you you know, it has, things don't change. Those were drones in those days. Yes. Same thing. They, yep. They just uh, had those different powered gas engines. Mm-hmm. These kinds of drones, most of them are electric, and they seem to have more propellers than the old ones. We're going to be back in a moment more with Annie Jacobson as we talk about her work, The Pentagon's Brain. And how about uh, we take some phone calls with you? We'll do that, too, on Coast to Coast AM. Well, did you know DARPA's original mission back in 1958 was to prevent technological surprise like the launch of Sputnik, which caught us all by surprise, and we've never stopped since, have we? We're going to come back in a moment with Annie Jacobson, talk a little bit more about her project, The Pentagon's Brain, and we'll take your calls on Coast to Coast AM. Okay, welcome back to Coast to Coast. We'll get your calls in a second here with Annie Jacobson, author of The Pentagon's Brain. Annie, based on what you've known from your research, what will be the biggest thing that DARPA does in the next five years? Create an army of drones, which they're already in the process of creating, but 
essentially present an army of drones that can work in consort. Um, these are drones that can fly, that can walk, crawl, swim. I mean, they're on land, in the oceans, even in space. And this idea that we talked about throughout this whole show is that we're moving toward these drones being able to govern themselves, starting with them acting like remote control drones that we know now, moving toward a four-step uh, process that the Pentagon has laid out, winding up with self-governance. Okay, these drones, how big would they be? Would they be minuscule, like well, the, the little flies? Or, yeah, I mean, they're, okay, so I'll give you some examples. Um, flying drones, they are, are tiny, they're called MAVs, micro-air vehicles. Those are designed to look like insects. There are also others that are the size of dragonflies, hummingbirds, up to pigeons. Um, the crawling drones are called landroids. And again, they're as small as a cockroach and as big as something that has treads on it that essentially acts like a small bulldozer. Um, the space drone is super interesting, mostly classified, experimental, but it's going to be able to go around the globe, in essence, almost as fast as a satellite. The, there is a, um, like a rocket-launched drone called Falcon HTV-2. This is a Mach 20 flying drone. So Mach 20 is so fast, this drone could get from New York City to L.A. in 12 minutes. These are just some of the drones that we're talking about. There's a whole fleet of them that are designed to look like humans or, you know, sort of be six feet tall and have a head and four, four limbs. And they're all, they all will ultimately work together as an army of drones. Then who's going to be controlling them? Individuals or are they going to be on their own? Well, that's the real rub that I think people should be really paying attention to. Okay, so it's a four-step process over the next 25 years at the Pentagon. Keep in mind that this is, again, this is a document at the Pentagon that is not classified. It's called Unmanned Systems Integrated Roadmap, okay? So this is the plan for 25 years out with DARPA leading the technology. Starting with drones that we have now, like, for example, the Predator drone is called what's it's called human operated, meaning there is a controller at Creech Air Force Base or wherever flying the drone that happens to be over Afghanistan, Iraq, Pakistan. So then we move towards step two, which is human supervised, where the drone is doing some work on its own, but um, has a human supervisor. Then you're getting toward the next one, which is uh, dele human delegated, and so. Ultimately, the, the fourth step is fully autonomous, and that's where the drone works. It has a whole set of laws programmed into its machinery so that it can act and govern itself by those internally programmed laws. Let's go to some of the calls. Andy, this is an amazing story that you've developed. How did you come across this? What made you even look at DARPA? You know, my last book, Operation Paperclip, yeah. features Von Braun, okay, sort of like the top Nazi that came here as our, as our top rocket scientist. Mm -hmm. And when I was looking at Von Braun's later life, meaning you know, he came here in 45, and then what was he doing in the 50s, I wondered. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, other than the obvious stuff that is well known. And I learned that he was on board to be 
the chief scientist of this brand new top technology agency that the Pentagon was creating called DARPA. And what was interesting is that Von Braun did not get the job, not because he didn't want to take it, but because he told the Pentagon he would take the job, provided that he could bring 12 of his fellow Nazis. And that did not fly at the Pentagon. They were okay with one, but not an additional 12. And so the job instead went to Herb York, who was the science director at the Livermore Nuclear Laboratory. Good job. Let's go to Kathy, Post Falls, Idaho. Kathy, you're on the air with us. Go ahead. Hi, George, and this, is it Jacobson? Hi, it's Andy Jacobson, yeah. Jacobson, yeah, hi. Well, I got in on the very end of your discussion. I mean, it was only about 15 minutes ago or so, just before the news. And I thought, wow, this is really scary. Anyway, you know what it reminded me of? And this is my kind of question. Have either one of you read that book called Battlefield Earth? There was a bad movie made of it years ago. I saw the bad movie. I did not, but it sounds like science fiction, and I will tell you that that you're right on target there because one of the things that DARPA program managers like to tell their scientists is this is not science fiction, this is science fact. Yeah, that's what it sounds like to me. Well, the book happens to have been written by L.R.H., L. Ron Hubbard, and it was one of his novels that he wrote early on, and it has to do with drone activity and how it's perceived by the people who are receiving its payloads and, you know, just the terror that it would inspire. And um, because, I mean, you know, unmanned, you have this, uh, you know, you, you don't have a human being in the plane dropping bombs like they did in World War II. You have some person, thousands, maybe thousands of miles away, directing the course of this machine, or it's, it's already pre-programmed. So there's no on-site thinking involved to change the pattern or the course if circumstances change. You know what I mean? It's like it's inhuman. It, it just scares the heck out of me. Well, so, anyway, that was my, that was my, um, my, you can probably find the book online. It's called Battlefield Earth, and it was written way back by L. Ron Hubbard because he used to write science fiction. And it's very, it's a, it's a good read. It's kind of fascinating. I read it back in the 80s, I think, and uh, had gotten a copy of it. Anyhow, it deals with drones, so people want to see, you know, up front and personal how this will affect human beings who are receiving these payloads, that would be a good book to, to get a hold of and read. Okay. Thanks for calling in. You know, Annie, you have read a little bit about the Somalia, the Battle of Mogadishu, mm -hmm. Black Hawk Down. Did the Pentagon, did DARPA, and, and let me ask you this too, does the Pentagon operate with DARPA or are they separate? Yes, absolutely. I mean, DARPA was inside the Pentagon until 1972. After the Vietnam War, there was so much pushback um, against advanced 
military research that DARPA got in trouble for developing weapons. For example, they were in charge of Agent Orange, actually. Uh, that was a DARPA program during Vietnam. And so they got kicked out of the Pentagon. It was seen as a real demotion. But what ended up happening when they moved to Arlington, Virginia, where they are now, they had a couple different moves along the way, is it gave them some of their own autonomy, and it really allowed for a huge expansion of ideas and even more research um, toward this. But, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned Mogadishu because that was a real turning point at DARPA because that was the real beginning of addressing urban warfare. And, of course, we see from the war on terror how difficult this is to defend against. Um, there was an amazing DARPA document I found where they quote Sun Tzu, the Chinese general from the 2005. Art of war. Yes. And they say, this is a Sun Tzu quote, it's, the worst policy is to attack cities. So there's this notion that fighting in an urban center is a really bad idea. And yet, that's where we are now. And this is disastrous for science and technology. It's extraordinarily difficult to defend against. All we had to do was read the book, <laughs> The Art of War. I know, but you know what? They did read the book. But then the, the sort of the conundrum was, well, what do you do about that? And that's where, I mean, we could talk for hours, George, because DARPA's, you know, surveillance technologies are mind-boggling. It's called ISR, Intelligence, Surveillance, and Reconnaissance. And that is what is perceived to be the way to win in the urban battle space is by having, you know, eyes, ears, etc. in the environment. But it doesn't work. And we see now that all of these places in Iraq where we put all this sensor technology, now the terrorists are in control of that. What happened to all that technology, DARPA won't say. What about the technology that will render people helpless, does not affect buildings or structures, but really brings people down to their knees? You've heard of that. Well, are, are you talking about an electromagnetic pulse bomb? Something that has to do with sound. EMP. Well, they're all, that, that's called non-lethal weaponry. Right. And I write about that in the book. That was actually developed during the Vietnam War. And you want to hear a spooky thing? Yeah. And I write about this at that length. The idea behind that was not to take out the Viet Cong. You know, there were bullets for that. Um, and Agent Orange. The idea of the non-lethal weapons was to take out the protesters in the United States. Mm. And yet that technology was being developed because it was so controversial. It was being de developed in secret centers in Saigon that DARPA created. They were called Combat Development Test Centers. They had the approval of the president of Vietnam, and the first ones that were set up had the approval of President Kennedy. He actually sent Johnson, his vice president, to Vietnam in 1961 to make a deal with President Diem to set up these DARPA weapons facilities um, in the country, and they had Vietnamese workers working in them sort of in outdoor areas so that no one knew it was the Americans behind it. Jeez. Have they ever used them on protesters here? All heck would have broken loose. Non-lethal weapons? Absolutely. I mean, you know, that's, we, we, that's where we could get into it for a long time. I mean, there is some really, you know, eyebrow-raising stuff in there because a lot of this 
it's crowd control. But the the non-lethal technologies, the DARPA scientists were pushing the edge of like using certain chemicals. I mean, things that were really super dangerous. And all of the scientists working on it, by the way, had to sign these waivers that were like, this is really top secret classified mm -hmm. stuff, and I will not mention it. They'll cut and, their and tongue out if they talked. Absolutely, because you know it was. On the one hand, I mean, and of course the the protesters are the ones that really, you know, made the Pentagon leave Vietnam. I, I write about that in the book because I think it's really important sure to recognize is. how important the people's voice can be. And when when we talk about the Battle of Mogadishu in the horrid picture of soldier being dragged mm -hmm. through, did they decide to go to robots then, cyborgs? You know. Cyborgs have been around, believe it. I mean, robotic technologies go back even further. The first documents that I could find on a program that was literally called Killer Robots, okay, it was from 1983, and the motto of the Killer Robots program was, the battlefield is no place for a human being. Next up, we go to Chuck Billings, Montana, first-time caller. Chuck, go ahead. Hi, George and Annie. Hello. Hi. Say, you know, uh, George, I've never heard you uh, uh, address this topic in the past, but uh, I've always wondered, Patton uh, wanted to just push on through to Russia. Yeah, he wanted to take the Soviets out, that's for sure. Yes, and I think, I think that might have just been a world order and just stopped at their world, uh, uh, the national nation or uh, United Nations would have just uh, been created there and that would have put a stop to everything. And uh, we could have, uh, we would have had the atomic uh, uh, bomb. Uh, I don't want to say we would have been the overlords. But, uh, yes, that would have put a stop to everything right then and there. It, it would, have been, would have been interesting, Chuck, if we were the only nation on this planet that had the atomic weapon. Yes, well, at that time we were. I, uh, at that time, because that time Russia for moments, yeah. Have the atomic bomb at that time, and we would have been the overlord. Yep. Now, I don't like that word, overlord, at all. But uh, that would have put a, uh, a finite completion to matters, and the United Nations uh, could have stepped in, and that would have been the end of things. Because, you know, if you didn't allow anybody to uh, uh, control the atomic age, uh, and it was left to the United States, that would have been the, the end of it. Yep. I do have a little. I have a little bit of a different take, which I'm just going to throw out there to think about. Which is this: that you know, it seems to me that it's the nature of, of humans to that whenever anyone creates something, someone else is going to create the same thing. Maybe even through the process of reverse engineering. And here's the best example I can think of: we, the United States started drone technology during the Vietnam War. When drones became first known to the public, armed drones, that is, it was in October of 2002 when they appeared on the battlefield in Afghanistan. We were the only people that had those drones. And now, 13 years later, 
186 nations have armed drones. So I do think that the technology is picked up by, by others once it is invented. Can you imagine, though, if we had flexed our muscles in a horrible way after World War II, we could have controlled the planet? I don't think that the United States, I don't think anyone can control the planet because it's too much consolidated power and too big of a geographical space. And I think that's the problem the Pentagon runs into now, which is a desire to control so much of the earth. And, to, and when I say that, I don't necessarily mean militarily. I write specifically in the book about the, the Pentagon and DARPA's efforts to, what, to the map the entire globe and keep an eye on it. There's a, there's a DARPA program called MAP-HT. It stands for Map Human Terrain. It's using all this incredible sensor technology DARPA has developed to keep an eye on the entire world, including what they called phase zero conflict zones. So areas that are not yet hotspots, but the Pentagon wants to keep an eye on them in case they become hotspots. Eddie Jacobson with us. We're going to come back in a moment on Coast to Coast AM. We're going to take some final phone calls with her in her book, The Pentagon's Brain. Where do you get the book, Annie? Oh, my goodness. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, independent stores, everywhere. What are you working on next? I know you don't stop. I'm not going to tell you yet, but you are going to love my next book. Is it? You can privately text me, mistext me, and I will tell you. Okay. Because when will it be done? Um... Well, I write a book every, I have a book published every two years. Well? We'll, have, we'll make a date for two years from tonight. You'll be back on again. Yes. All right, stay with us. We're going to come back in a moment. Your website, by the way, is her name, AnnieJacobsonSEN.com, linked up at CoastToCoastAM.com. And don't forget to like us on Facebook, which has had its technical problems these days, and follow us on Twitter. We're going to come back in a moment on Coast to Coast AM, and we'll take some final phone calls. Welcome back with Annie Jacobson, our final segment here, and we'll take your final calls as well. Annie, through all of this, through all of this, what would you say has been the most beneficial thing that DARPA has done for us? You know, that's a great question, and it is important to give credit where credit is due. I think there's a current program that I was particularly interested in, and it has to do with vaccines. So the WHO, the World Health Organization, gives as a time length nine months to produce, for a company, a pharmaceutical company, to produce a vaccine once a disease comes, you know, into play. DARPA challenged itself in 2013 to break this model, to create a new model in essence, and it did. But here's the way in which it broke the model. It created 10 million vaccines for the H1N1 virus in 30 days. That is remarkable. That is remarkable. Yes. Now, who's behind innovation today at DARPA? Who finds the who finds the minds? Yes, I mean that's a great question. It is today as it has always been, a very small, flexible, agile organization free of red tape. So there's approximately 120 program managers as there has been since 1958 
And those program managers are responsible for all of DARPA's programs. DARPA has a $3 billion a year budget. So divide that amount of money among 120 people and think of how much money they have at their disposal and how many different research organizations, either private or military or university-based laboratories, that those program managers are hiring to work on its programs. The program managers themselves can stop and start research very quickly. This is not your average military model. All right, back to the phones we go. East of the Rockies, Mike in Geneva, New York. Welcome to the show. Hey, Michael, go ahead. How you doing, George? Good, Mike. Um, I got a question for Miss Jacobson. Okay. I, I, I've caught the uh, last, say, half an hour talk about drones. I've listened to a few of the phone calls. I guess I want to know what your take is on drones in the battlefield. Um, working both on land and in air um, next to soldiers? Well, you know, I was out at Creech Air Force Base in 2009, so that was right in the middle of the War on Terror. Um, and it was when I was in the room with the drone operators uh, that was, you know, technically being in the battlefield. I mean, it was very remarkable. The door said, you are entering the war theater, you know, deadly force authorized. Um, so I saw firsthand that setup of how that worked. And, you know, it's a DARPA strategy called offset strategy where you have a very large distance between the operator and the actual war theater. Um, what do I think about that? It's an interesting question. I mean, I usually have my reporter's cap on, and I am witnessing it. Um, I, don't, I, I, I don't mean to interrupt you quick. I just give you a brief background on myself. Sure. Um, I'm a sergeant in the, U, in the U.S. Army, okay? Prior active duty. I've seen four tours, one in Iraq, three in Afghanistan. Okay, a little of what you're saying is true. Um, I've actually met firsthand operators of drones that are in theater. Um, I've actually been saved several times by MQ-9 Reapers and backpack wasps. Um, wow, so. the wasp, nice. Yes, that's the DARPA technology. So you, so you support these, Michael? You think they're great for battlefield? Uh, uh, Air-mounted, or sorry, air-deployable drones, Mm -hmm. Yes, um, manned. You know, yeah. uh, they're flown by an operator who's somewhere. Keeping, yeah, keeping, well, you're, you're 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 keeping that person out of harm. Um, yes, some people find it scary. I know a lot of people uh, that find them they're completely repulsive. They they can't stand that there's not an operator in there. But if you you look at the past. 20 years, you know, you get planes that are shot down. I mean, I don't know how many countless helicopters got shot down by RPGs mm -hmm. in the Middle East. Right. Um, there's more than I got fingers and toes. So that that that, that specific technology, I think, is great. Well, if, if these drones can be used to protect our soldiers and minimize death, I think we should use them. Mm -hmm. Part of the problem, Andy, 
with drones, as we're beginning to see, though, here in the United States, is that law enforcement is beginning to want to use them. And, you know, looking over Americans and stuff, that could be a problem to me. Mm-hmm. Well, I just also wanted to comment on the caller who called in, and, and thank you for your service, and thank you for your observations, which are important, particularly when they come with experience, as you are obviously you know, sharing with us. And I think that in those situations, you know, we are in agreement that, you know, manned drones, A, they exist, and B, they're very important. And then another one is the Talon robot that is out there doing the work that the the Hurt Locker guys, they're technical, they're technically called EOD techs, explosive ordnance um, technicians. You know, they are, those are saving a lot of lives. I think we're the question gets raised and the kind of controversial elements that need to be on the table has to do with the drones, the hunter-killer drones down the road that will be autonomous. And they could make a mistake. Yes, and that are that's really just turning over way too much control. And if we go back to that original idea that I opened the book with of those thermonuclear weapons, which you cannot defend against, however, a thermonuclear weapon cannot launch itself. I mean, for example, if, if the, let's say somebody programs the drone to shoot at a bank robber who escapes in a red car, and he drives by another red car, how does the drone know which one to take out? That's absolutely the great point. And, I mean, you know, there are some analogies in the self-driving cars, the DARPA challenges for these, where, like, you have a self-driving car that is taught to avoid a hazard in the road, and there's a branch coming down, and so the car drives off the road. I mean, that's a harmless scenario, but if you put that into the the war theater, like you said, shoot the guy in the red car, we're talking about a totally different um, level of error that's unacceptable. We've got Paul in Seattle, west of the Rockies. Hello, Paul. Go ahead. Hey, George. Thanks for taking my call. Sure thing. Hello, Mr. Jacobson. Uh, Yeah, George, uh, the GPS map systems, you know, how many people we've read about just driving into a lake because of things, you know, (laughs) but uh, I wanted to ask uh, Ms. Jacobson, uh, I have this old VHS tape about the Russians were using uh, microwaves during the Nixon uh, administration and that um, they were pointing it at the embassy in Russia and that, uh, you know, this at the time, I think it was 69 or 73 or whenever in that uh, era, um, that uh, it would make the ambassador uh, cry and uh, depressed, uh, you know, just emotional. And so, and then Nixon came over there and just make it real quick. So, I mean, like you said earlier, just imagine what they have uh, now uh, mm-hmm. capable of controlling people's minds. Mm-hmm. Well, you know? that's a great, you know, um, thanks hmm. for telling us that story, and, I, and I'm familiar a little bit with that genre. A microwave weapon is essentially a directed energy weapon. It's called dew weapons. And DARPA's in charge of those weapons. They're extremely highly classified. They're also called laser beam weapons. They're the most accurate, fastest weapons out there. I mean, those weapons travel at the speed of light. And also, they are in a straight line. Think about a bullet curving. So the microwave weapons, any, all that arena has been going on technologically since, 
you know, the 50s. And again, because they're classified, there's no way of really knowing or certainly not reporting on where that technology is today. Annie, as you uh, did your research on DARPA, did you come across any roadblocks that you weren't able to uh, hurdle? Well, I mean, one always comes across roadblocks researching and reporting, but I think the real, the goal is always to get to the end of the story, you know, so you just kind of, sometimes you have to, you know, you have to act like a drone, crawl over it, go around it, go higher, you know, swim beside it, I mean, metaphorically, of course, but if you just keep at it, I find, I keep at it, and I ask enough people, eventually the answers come. Eventually the scientist turns up, the engineer turns up, the soldier in the field turns up, and then I'm able to triangulate the story using primary sources and also secondary sources that I access through Freedom of Information Acts, through different archives that I visit, and also through the personal papers of these scientists that often get left in uh, university archives. It's a huge resource out there. I got uh, an email from one of our listeners who said, George, I don't care what Annie talks about. If she reads the name out of the phone book, I'll listen to her. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. How about that? Next up, we well, got Michael in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Uh, Virginia, by the way, is where DARPA is, isn't it? Arlington, Virginia. Uh-huh. Michael, welcome to the show. You are on the air with us. Go ahead. Uh, thank you so much, George, and thank you, Annie. Uh, Annie, I want to connect what's saying tonight with your book, Operation Paperclip, and with what Joseph Farrell said on his last appearance on the show. And I think when you hear what I have to say, George will decide to have Well, we're losing you. Let's uh, try to get a better connection with him, Gina, and we'll get him back on before we run out of time here, if we Hope- can. Hopefully he was a human and not an autonomous robot, because See, he started sounding like that again. Sometimes I scared think me. they block their phones. Uh-huh. The government doesn't. Yes. Next up, we go to uh, Jeff, though, in Culver City, California. Hey, Jeffrey, go ahead. Yeah, hi, George and Mr. Jacobson. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah, DARPA's creation of the Internet was outstanding, but I think they made a mistake by availing this technology to the general public. And as a result, worldwide, you know, you get people like Ed Snowden, hackers, WikiLeaks, and other crafty disinformation conglomerates and organizations. Yet the beauty of classifying collected or collated information is that there's no way to actually prove the intelligence to be truthful or credible. My question is this, Ms. Jacobson, do you think that targeted individuals can really protect their private information from unwanted prying eyes with the use of encryption applications or techniques? And what do you think of people creating their own forms of coding or encryption languages, you know, something that only they would know or understand, and I'll take your answer off the air. Oh, what a great question. I mean, the short version is no. I don't think you can actually protect your information. I think the government can access what it what it wants to, if it really does, with a certain court order. But I'll give you an example that makes a point of how far DARPA technology is. And this is an unclassified example, but sensor technology, so imagine encrypting everything on your computer. So you believe that what you write into your computer is, you know, is free from Eyes. Well, think about this DARPA technology, which is sensors that can covertly be applied to a person's 
fingertips, and they wouldn't know they're there. It's almost like, think of like a little thin gel on the tip of your fingertip. And then when you type on your keyboard, everything that you type is then recorded back to an information center. I mean, that really is spooky, and it also makes you look twice at your manicurist, because you have to wonder how DARPA would get those sensors covertly onto someone's fingertips. We're not going to get Michael back, by the way, from Virginia. He had a uh, good story in question for you, but his phone is not working well. Oh, well. Joe is in the Bronx. Hey, Joe, hey. go ahead. How you doing, George? Good. Yeah, I'd like to ask Ms. Jacobson, uh, yeah, yeah, I had an experience with what I believe to be an insect-sized drone. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, it had it had a motorized mm -hmm. sound to it, and huh. it looked that it looked to be either a bee or a wasp. But I was just wondering now, and and this this drone, what I believe to be a drone, cannot be swatted down. Kept coming at me, even though I was swatting it with a pillow. Uh -huh. So I, what, I, what I'm asking is now: now, what about the utilization of these insect-like drones or mini drones yes. uh, to to spy on people or to be uh, fitted with bio weapons? I think you're yes. absolutely right on both counts. Well, he's absolutely right. I mean, that is a fact. I'll, I'll give you an example, and I write this in the book. I tell the story of a lawyer who went to a um, war protest in Lafayette Park in Washington, D.C., because his daughter asked him to go. And he said that he was amazed because he looked up and he saw what he thought at first were dragonflies, and then he realized, wait a minute, there's three or four of them, and they're flying in lockstep. I mean, they all move together. And it was impossible that they were anything but mechanical, was what his mind said. And, of course, the other part of his mind said, you know, you're imagining things. But a number of people saw this, and the Washington Post ended up writing about these different reports of these dragonfly-like drones. Well, at the time, back during the War on Terror, DARPA would not admit to it. But last year, while I was researching the book, they did admit to it. So those were actual drones that were sent out to spy on the protesters in Lafayette Park. So your story is super interesting and could very likely be true. As far as the assassination um, attempt or the, uh, the idea of using it as a, as a means of assassination, if you go to my website, AnnieJacobson.com, and you go to the Pentagon's brain page, I have a video there by um, four what are called micro-air vehicles. And it's a animated program that shows exactly how those assassination drones will work. They're being developed presently. I mean, you could fly it anywhere if it had the capability. You know, let's say you put a little ricin on the tip of this mm -hmm. thing, and you go and li land this little drone fly on somebody and jab him, and he's gone. Absolutely. I mean, and the, the DARPA is designing them with conventional explosives, sort of like, a, you know, they the way they show it in this video is it flies right up to the neck of a terrorist who's about to take a, a sniper shot. And you blow him up. And the drone blows and kills him. Now, what happens, though, if those terrorists get this kind of weaponry? Well, this is, this is the conundrum of the military-industrial complex, that all weapon systems are, have a built-in obsolescence. 
the enemy gets the technology begins using it on us and then we have to create new technology to defend against what we've already created any good job tonight let's stay in touch ok thanks so much for having me any jacobson a website linked up at the coast to coast am dot com the book the pentagon's brain up next no good buys life changing insights from the other side with Barry Eaton. Fresh back from Scottsdale, Arizona. What a beautiful spot there. I was in the Life in the Afterlife conference. What a great conference that was. Lots of folks in attendance. We did our meet and greet and had a great time, and the speakers were just absolutely superb. And then at the end of the event, we all participated in a seance. A fellow by the name of David Thompson, who communicates and channels the dead, held the seance. Now, let me tell you a little bit about that. We were not permitted to wear shoes, to bring anything. Women had to take their jewelry off. Guys had to take their watches off. No flashlights, nothing. And then we were checked for any metal. They scanned us with one of those TSA-type wands. And we go into this room in a uh, church, not really a real church, but a church. And they darken the room. I was one of the checkers, along with uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our regular guest. And we checked things out. We put David Thompson in a chair. They strapped him in with uh, those little police straps that they have now, right? Those plastic things where you hook it and pull it and you're stuck. And he was also, and he had a sweater on. And, the, and, and we put those little ties in the front of his sweater and pulled it. And then we clipped it. We, you know, you, we cut off the excess. He was in there. He was in this chair in this little tiny black curtained room. And then they put curtains all over the, 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 the windows, and they taped things, and they shut the lights off. And, folks, this was pitch black. You could not see your hand in front of your face. And so David was to channel three entities. One was called actually four. William, somebody from the United Kingdom from the 1800s, a little boy named Timmy, another fellow by the name of Quentin, who is a thespian from the United Kingdom, and Louis Armstrong. And the seance began, William came on with his English accent, and it was different. It was weird. So after it was all done, after they did all this thing, and even one of the spirits came up to me to talk about some of my dead relatives, which, by the way, is easily accessible on the Internet. You can get that. But we, we all of us, you know, I was talking with Rosemary and some other people about it, it was a great presentation in terms of seance. It was weird. I mean... At command, they, you know, the spirits would come and talk, and then they apparently came through his the ectoplasm that came out of David's mouth. 
even though he was wrapped up. We had him all wrapped up, two in the mouth. And every time there was a transition between the spirits, you would hear this sound that would go like this. I kid you not. That was a little hokey. But we did. Seance was, was a, it was a good performance. And when it was over, David Thompson was in his chair seven feet outside of the little black curtain room we put him in. I don't know how he got out. He was in the middle of the room. It was pitch black. We couldn't see anything. We turned the light on. The sweater, which he was bolted into, was reversed. So those little ties were on the back, on his back, not the front. And he was still locked in the chairs with those other ties. I don't know how he did that. I don't know if it was magic or what. But anyways... The consensus was, this is what i got to say, the consensus was that it was a great entertainment, but we would like to do some scientific study. Like, I wanted to turn a flashlight on and see if there was a person standing there. Because you could, you know, they, they, the spirits were walking around. You could hear that and stuff. But, so the jury's out. I'd like to do more of a scientific study on something like that, but they're not going to permit that, you know, because you couldn't bring anything in at all. But it was really strange, I'll tell you that. We're going to come back in a moment as we talk about no goodbyes, life-changing insights from the other side with Barry Eaton. So stand by for the next two hours on Coast to Coast AM. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. It's been a couple of years, but Barry Eaton is back, known primarily in Australia as a radio and television personality. He discovered that the universe had different plans for him, however, and after studying astrology, Barry was led to develop his own psychic and clairvoyant skills. He is an intuitive reader, has conducted meditation and development groups in Sydney, Australia for many years, produces and hosts an Internet radio program as well, and here he is back on Coast to Coast with his latest work, No Goodbyes, Barry Eaton. Hey, Barry, welcome back. Ah, oh, George, thank you. The last two years have flashed by, but it's great to be back again. Too fast, way too fast. That's kind of scary because we're getting to that last moment where stories like No Goodbyes are very important, Barry. <laughs> we're getting closer and closer every time you're ready, George. We really are. Tell me about this this metamorphosis for you as a as a radio personality, television personality, who had this ability and you've really magnified it? Well, I think we've all got the abilities, George, and it, it takes something to trigger it off. We, we need a catalyst. In my case, it was divorce, and I needed to go in a whole new direction in life, and I did. I was doing a, a callback radio program uh, in the 80s, and uh, one of the guests on there was uh, an astrologer, and I said to him one day, I've decided to do your astrology course next year. And he said, what? What, what triggered that? I don't know. It just sort of came out of nowhere. So I did, and, and that then became the platform for uh, a whole new direction in life for me. I was still continuing with my radio and, and TV, and, and I started doing lecturing and journalism and various other things. Um, but I was able to have two sides to the life, I guess, because I've got four planets in Gemini. That helps a bit. Oh, sure but, does. Yeah. <laughs> but I think we all get to that stage where it's just not enough. Normal life, whatever normal is, 
just sort of reaches that stage. I mean, I really need something new in my life, and that's what happened to me, George. So I've embraced the whole new direction, and it's, it's, I believe it's the whole purpose that I really came here on this journey in life to, uh, to explore. And all of my other work in mainstream radio, TV, film, theatre, and that over the years has been a preparation for this because I can now communicate in a different way. But I couldn't have done that to the same extent without this whole preparation. Barry, were you always a believer in life after death? Yeah, it, I guess like a lot of kids, I was brought up with, with religious studies. I sort of dropped that after a while. Though. But it always made sense to me that life just did not end at death. In fact, I saw my grandfather pass over when I was only a young guy uh, in my teens. And he started talking to his family just on his deathbed virtually. And his sisters came to get him and he, he was talking to them. And I realized, and he wasn't delirious or anything like that, he was quite conscious. And he turned around and he looked at us and he said, we know nothing. And he said, there's a big stairway in front of me right now. And he just left the body at that stage and off he went up the stairway with his sisters. And from that moment on, I was, I won't say I'm hooked, but I certainly uh, had no doubts whatsoever. You know, Barry, I was talking about that seance I attended this weekend. And, yeah, with David. And, and you heard that story. Do you know David at all? I know him extremely well. He launched my first book with me in Afterlife in Sydney. He's been a guest on my program several times. He's a great guy. What is your take on his ability? Because I thought it was a great, entertaining seance, as everybody did. But in terms of it being real, I want to do some scientific testing of that. Yeah, I heard you at the beginning of the show. I felt the same way, George, when I... Um, went to see him first of all as a as a medium. He came on with radio uh, on radio with me and took some calls and whatever. And then I went to his demonstration of what they call physical mediumship. And I went along. I was very leery about mm -hmm. the whole thing. And I was thinking, oh no, this just doesn't ring true to me. But I've got to say, some things happened in there which really um, set me back a little bit. I've done a lot more research. I've had uh, David as a guest a few times, and I honestly believe, having tuned into him, I honestly believe he is genuine. How they do it, how they move the chair, how they do all these ties, and exactly the same scene that you painted earlier on I saw, and I still don't know how they do it. I know. It is, it is mind-boggling. Uh, I, I would have loved to have had a flashlight that I could have quickly turned on when uh, Spirit was talking uh, to see if there was some guy standing there in his blue jeans and, you know, his cover up, but because you could not, you cannot see. It is, it is the eeriest feeling I've been in in a long time. I mean, because it is so, so dark. You can rub your hands right across your eyes. You don't even see that, that wish of your fingers. It's that dark. But the interesting thing, George, is when that, the little boy Kim came around, he actually took my hand. And I felt it wasn't David's hand. It wasn't the hand of a man. It was a child's hand. Now, there was no way we had the room sealed and everything. There was no way a child could have snuck in, even if they lowered him through a no. hole in the roof or something. So uh, you know, it, it really confounded me, but I've opened my mind ever since. And uh, the first spirit, William, put his hand on my head, yeah. and, and I could feel that. And that, that was spooky. Um, something did happen right at the end. Uh, in, in pitch total darkness, something, somebody knocked over the mic stand that was that was there to pick up some of the sounds, and that was that was strange. So, yeah. 
I don't know. I wanted to check out whether, you know, they would be wearing night vision goggles. And if they do, do you see the, the greenish look on the outside? Because, again, we couldn't see anything. No, look, I know how you feel. And um, I guess the jury has to stay out because it's so difficult to prove, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. So as we, th but I'm a believer in the afterlife. I'm a believer. I mean, I've had my doubts, but I believe that it exists, that there's something to all of this, this existence, and it's there. Uh, so tell us a little bit about No Goodbyes. Well, the last time I spoke to you it was from my first book, Afterlife, yes. which um, told my story in many ways from uh, when I was killed in the trenches in the First World War right through to the birth of this lifetime, and I followed the whole life-between-life life journey. And uh, did a lot of other research as well and talked about my relationship with uh, a lady called Judy that uh, really inspired me to write the book. I thought at the end of that book, okay, done that, I'll go off and do something else now. And one of the spirits I was communicating with on the other side was a guy called John Dingwall. And John was a well-known film producer and screenwriter here in Australia. And he came through... Uh, via a trance medium where I took this trance medium down into a very deep state of, I guess, near hypnosis, and then he is able to allow John to come in to his body, and his whole demeanor changed, John's voice came through, his phraseology, everything came through, and a lot of the information I got from the other side came from John. And I was thinking to myself, hey, this guy's pretty cluey. He's suddenly, he's only been over there a few years and he knows all this. I must be a very old spirit. Anyway, when it came time to sort of say thanks after the book came out, I, I did another session with this guy, Kelly, and John came through. And I said, John, just want to thank you and everybody. He said, hey, well, what do you mean thank me? It's not over. And I said, well, yes, it is. I've written a book. He said, no, no, no. There's a lot more to go yet. I said, oh, really? So anyway, we started doing more sessions, and I found out that John is not the font of all knowledge on the other side. He actually actually works a kind of as a kind of anchor, and he is the spoke spirit I call him, the mouthpiece for about 95 to 100 different spirits in various levels in the afterlife, and he's bringing all through this information on many many different topics. So no goodbyes went. A whole lot deeper. We had to. Afterlife was the basic journey, helping people to get over their grief, understand that death is not mm -hmm. the end. But no goodbyes goes into a very different perspective on the afterlife, and as the title says, life-changing insights from the other side. So John and and then various other mediums I worked with helped me to gain really deep insights into what happens and also their relationship with us and the information they're sending back and what they want us to know about the afterlife and other mysteries in life. So I guess that's a bit of a nutshell there, George. What do you think this is all about, the other side? What, what is it? Well, it's another dimension of reality um, because we are essentially pure energy, the soul, and I was told that the spirit actually is the vehicle for the soul, and the spirit then attaches itself at the heart level. So we talk about heart and soul and whatever. So that's what, uh, where the spirit is. But when that spirit departs from the body, that's when the body perishes, that's the death. But the soul, being an energy, energy um, can't be destroyed. It can be transmuted but not destroyed. So to me it makes obvious sense that 
it's going to go back to where it came from originally. Now, we can call it the afterlife, we can call it the other side, we can call it heaven, paradise, whatever, whatever label you want to put on it. But we go back there, and that is our real home. It's another dimension that vibrates a lot faster than the Earth vibrates and our energy here. So that when we're going back into this other dimension, we go through a kind of portal, and some people see it as a tunnel in near-death experiences. We go through into this other dimension, and that in turn has many, many different levels, and they all vibrate at a higher rate the higher you go. So essentially, um, we're going home. Because this is not home. The afterlife, the world of spirit, that is our real home. That's where we come from. We come here for an earthly adventure. All sorts of things happen. Then we go back again. Why are so many people, Barry, afraid of dying? They're petrified. Yeah, look, I agree. And that was one of the prime reasons that I, I wrote Afterlife, was to help, to help out in this misconception. But I think it's belief systems through the years, and a lot of fear by people who want to control what we do and who we are. Oh, no, 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 you're going to die, it's all over. And skepticism comes into this a heck of a lot as well. You know, oh, all this heaven and all that nonsense, that's just nu-nu-na-na stuff. <laughs> but it, it's not. To me, it's logical. It makes sense. Why would we only just have one life? Why would there only be one opportunity when it's so diverse? Somebody might come onto the planet and die after a few weeks or a few months or die tragically as a young person, come into life uh, from anywhere from being in absolute abject misery through to being part of a very wealthy family. This is, is this coincidence? I don't think so. I think it's just one of many existences that we have. In fact, I know it is because I've, I've dabbled and, and you know, got right into past life work as well. So it's, it's a lot more than just life as we are, but we are taught that we are actually a body with a soul. Everything revolves around the physical. And if we reverse that and know that we are a spiritual energy that happens to use the body as a vehicle, then it changes everything entirely. Do you think this dimension of where we go in the afterlife was created before just about everything else was created, that it was one of the first things made in this universe? Yeah, well, I mean, we, we're getting down into areas of uh, involving everything from the Big Bang through to uh, right. the whole creative bit. And, you know, I'm no scientist, but to me it, it makes sense that I, I, I can't really accept the Big Bang. I don't think that something can come out of nothing. There had to be a creative force, a creative energy there. And from what I understand, and, and I've been told from the other side, that we are little offshoots from that original creative source. So, yeah, the afterlife is the world of spirit, and it is the world of the creator, and we're little sort of chips off the old block, if you like. Do you think your broadcast experience has helped augment where we are today with what you're doing? It has, because, as you know, I mean, you've, you've been in the business a long time yourself, just like me, and there were just so much superficial stuff that goes on and after all, you want to delve beneath the surface. You want to find out. You sure do. Stay with us. We're going to take this quick break, Barry. We'll uh, talk more about No Good Bites next hour. Share your stories or a question with Barry Eaton right here on Coast to Coast AM. And welcome back. Barry Eaton with us. And the, the book, of course, is called No Good Buys. Barry, we're talking about, of course, what it's like, what the afterlife might have been like to get created first 
when this vast universe was put together as well. There had to have been a design, a plan. <laughs> I wish I knew that answer, George. You got me there. <laughs> I guess there's one creator out there that knows what the plan was, but he hasn't told me. What do you think it's all about, though? What, the universe? We, 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 we live, we die, we reincarnate. Why? Okay. I believe, and from what I've been told, and, and I can only ever talk in my books and, and you know, when we're chatting here, that the information that's been passed on to me and what I've researched, basically it's all about evolving as a human soul. Now, we are, as I said before, a part of the energy of the Creator. From what I understand, that this huge sea, boiling sea of energy, it's not an old man with a long white beard sitting on a throne throwing thunderbolts around like <laughs> some kind of, you know, Greek tragedy. No, no, the, the creator is a force, and we are a little part of that force. I guess the best analogy I can make is, like, if you take a, a big bucket of water, you take a little drop out of it, that drop can exist on its own, but then it can go back into that sea of water again and disappear, and you'll never see it, because it's part of the original from what I understand, that is a short version of what we have as lives. And we are that little drop of energy that comes out as a soul, comes out and has all these incredible experiences over various lifetimes to have as many experiences as possible, to make as many mistakes, to have whatever needs to be able to evolve fully as a soul until we don't need to come back anymore. Then we move on to another aspect of our life. So it's all about a continuing, a continuing evolution, basically. We as individual souls, and I guess as we are part of the universe, the universe is evolving and we're going with it. Well, and part of this, this creation, too, that is put together by what we call the force, I think in order for us to try to understand it, we had to create the thought that the force, the God, was like us, that, you know, you had arms and legs and somehow was up there in the clouds. And they kept teaching that to us. I, at a very early age, Barry, said to myself, I said, this doesn't sound right. I don't get this. And, you know, like you, I, I think we're right. I, I think it's more of an intelligently designed force. That's well, it makes sense because, I mean, the, the, originally, I forget it even says in the Bible, not being a great student of the Bible, but uh, it says that we are born in the image of God. And everybody sort of thought, oh, well, we're human beings, so uh, we must look like him, so he must look like this old man sitting in a chair. But why aren't we the image of the Creator, which is energy? To me, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah, maybe our souls indeed look like the Creator, whatever they look like. But it's the same as the drop of water that comes out of the ocean. It still essentially looks like the ocean, doesn't it? It sure does. It sure does. I would assume that you're not uh, you're not in any hurry to die, but I don't think you're afraid of it, are you? No, not at all. A couple of years ago, in fact, just a few weeks before I was on your program, first up, I, I just finished uh, a six-month treatment for cancer, and I'd just come out the other side, and... All through that, having written the first book, Afterlife, no stage of the game did I ever think I am going to die. No stage did I think this is it. But then I thought a couple of times, well, even if it is, even if I really 
am not heading in the direction I think I am. Even if it is, I'm not afraid. I am not fearing in any way, shape or form the next part of my evolution. I think that's a very comforting thing. And so many people I've talked to, having gotten back to me after Afterlife and now the uh, new book, No Goodbyes, they are saying to me that it's not only helped them with their grief and understanding that there's more than just this very physical sort of existence we're in, but it's helping them to look at their life and make decisions that are going to help improve them, not only in this life, but also in preparing for their ongoing existence. Now, I was very gratified to get that information, as you may gather. You have the ability yourself to communicate with spirits, don't you? Yeah. Did you develop that? How did that happen? Yes, I did. I developed it, much the same as I started off with astrology and then moved into doing some psychic sort of stuff. While I was still... Uh, doing my mainstream broadcasting. But then I met, after my divorce in 1989-90, I met a beautiful lady called Judy, who we got together in 1993, but after only four years, she passed over very suddenly. But in that four years, we came to realize that we were, we had a very strong soul connection. And then when she passed over, uh, um, we started a radio program off from home, actually, called Celestial Power, which is the precursor to my current show of radio I've been. And I had a medium on, and she rang me after a couple of months and said, would you like to talk to Judy? And I said, well, yeah, I would, Ruth, but she's passed over, as you know. She said, yes, but she's come through, and she'd like to communicate with you. So I did. I went over to see Ruth that week, and she brought Judy through with some amazing information. She'd met Judy very, very briefly about a week before she passed over, and knew nothing about her at all. The information that came through from that session blew me away because it was Judy to a T. Everything she said, everything that happened, plus various other members of my family came through. So I was then told that I had the permission from the powers that be on the other side to keep on communicating with Judy. And we did this to start off with, with automatic writing. And then my abilities grew exponentially, able to talk, first of all, to Judy, and then to connect with, with other spirits. And you're now convinced, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that that's who you were communicating with. Oh, yeah, yeah. The information that came through was so personal that there was no way that anybody else could have known about this. See, and, and that's, that's what convinces you, when, when yeah. they have that tidbit of information that you know they can't find anyplace else. Exactly. Well, it's, it's so uh, difficult to prove these sort of things scientifically in a, in a laboratory somewhere, as the skeptics would like us to do. But then again, you can't prove the physical aspect of love. Love is a wonderful emotion, but you can't prove that in a laboratory. So there are certain things in life that we need to be able to take on faith or on our own intuition, our own learning from within, I believe. Well, with Barry Eaton, his book, No Goodbyes, Harry Houdini, Barry, spent the best part of his life trying to look for a real qualified medium to help him find his mother who had died. He was unsuccessful. He was not able to do it. Of a hundred mediums that are out there, how many do you think are the real deal? Now, this is an interesting question, George, because one of the things that my spirit team said back to me by John, as I mentioned before, my spoke spirit, was the fact that they are very concerned about the number of uh, mediums and psychics that are cropping up 
out of the blue. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them are sort of doing a weekend tarot course or something, and then they realize that, oh, it's a good way to make some money. I'll get out there and hang my shingle out and start uh, giving readings to people. Right. No qualifications, no real training, very, very limited ability, and they can cause far more harm than any good that they might possibly do. So the guys over in Spirit were warning uh, everybody here that you've got to be so careful. And anybody can... I can sit down and talk to somebody in a meeting and say, oh, look, yes, I see this, this lady coming through. Uh, it's, it's, oh, your mother. My mother's still here on Earth. Well, it must be your grandmother. Yes, you, your grandmother's on the other <laughs> right. side, isn't she? Well, eventually, yeah. they're going to hit it, right? Yeah, exactly. Anybody can do that. Cold reading, you know, you're a bit conversant. And there's a lot of them about, so we have to be very, very careful. There are some brilliant mediums, fantastic psychics, but you really have to be so careful. As, as you continue to do this, have you personally found mediums that you really thought were outstanding, like the James Von Progs or the John Edwards? Are, are they? Yes, I have. I found two that I, I've worked with for my new book, uh, No Goodbyes. Val Hood, who is a wonderful UK medium, has now come out to live in Australia. Val connected with Judy and my late partner and brought through some information. She'd never met Judy, knew nothing about her, hadn't read my first book or anything. And the information that she came through, with, which I've written about in No Goodbyes, once again blew me right away. And then there's another guy that I've worked with, Etzio DeAngelis, and he is one of Australia's finest mediums. In fact, I would put him in the, the top echelon for two or three mediums in Australia. Both of these people are, I'm very proud to say, friends of mine, and they came and worked with me on this book, plus the fact of my spirit team. So the information that I was getting, I not only believe 100% to be true, but it's all done from the heart, George, and that's where it comes from. It's not just the head. It must come from the heart. Where does evil fit in here, Barry? The devil? Or does it? <laughs> well, look, there are dark spirits. There are dark energies. On yeah. the other, and hanging around the earth plane as well. But look, as for the devil, you know, some bloke in a red suit with horns, you know, waving a pitchfork around, uh, that's very Dante-esque sort of image. And we've, we've been led to believe this by very controlling organizations, shall we say. I don't want to upset anybody here. But controlling organizations that want the power over our life. Do what we tell you, otherwise you'll go straight to hell, do not pass go, do not collect $200. You know. But there are dark energies around, and we have to be aware of them. A huge amount of negativity, and when we go back to the other side, we do take on our spirit an imprint of what we've done here. So if you've been extremely negative, you're going to take that imprint back with you. If you've been extremely evil, you will not only take the imprint back, but you will go to the lower echelons, shall we say, of the afterlife. No hell, no eternal fires and damnation and all that. Eventually, people can be helped and uh, helped to, to actually improve themselves and come back again into other lives and help people. But there's no hell, there's no burning flames and uh, grinning demons doing nasty mm-hmm. things to people. We're not going to burn forever. <laughs> Certainly I not. No, I don't believe that at all. In reincarnation, the spirit reincarnates, ends up being in another human form, another body. Yet, some people have been able to still communicate with that spirit. How does that happen? How does that spirit reincarnate, end up in another physical body, yet still is in contact in the spirit realm 
with mediums and other people? That's, that's a great question, too, because we don't bring all of our energy back with us in each lifetime. There is a certain part of our soul energy that stays in the afterlife. There's a certain aspect of us that we are only bringing back a percentage of our soul energy. But I've done a lot of reincarnation work with the book No Goodbyes. I, was, I went into a four-hour um, session, a past-life session, with a lady who works in the Michael Newton Life Between Life program. And the information that came out was absolutely stunning, which I've, I've written at length about. It's, it's just something. I mean, we can get into the whole area of parallel universes, oh, yeah. with energies, and, you know, it, it just sort of goes on and on. I think my brain can only take so much to it. I failed at math. <laughs> I still can't get the, the Big Bang, Barry. I, I just can't comprehend how something like that could, say, and, and some scientists are saying, well, it really wasn't an explosion. And so I say, well, why do you call it the Big Bang then? Yeah, so what do they say? That, well, they don't know. <laughs> They're all looking for the answer. But I, I just, uh, something tells me it always was here. There wasn't a big explosion. There wasn't a compression of energy that it was always here. And that's hard for our brain to accept because we can only, uh, it's like a computer, we've only got so much capacity, haven't we? And, and I agree with you. I, I feel that it just didn't emerge. You can't get something out of nothing. No, not at all. And then if we believe in the multiverses, the parallel universes, which is a theory now that uh, a lot of scientists and physicists are starting to talk about. They are. And um, once again, you know, once you start moving into quantum physics, it does open up a whole new Pandora's box, doesn't it? And, and I can understand it, but it's difficult to sort of comprehend that we could be living parallel existences in, in time and space. Uh, at the same time as you and I are sitting here talking, we might be doing, I might be interviewing you on a radio program uh, in another parallel universe. Indeed, indeed. So throughout all of this, how do we get the answers? Do we have to die ourselves in order to find out what really is going on? No, I read my books. Um, <laughs> no, honestly, there is so much. And they're good books, too, by the way. Thank you very much. Um, there is so much information out there, but we really have to have that intention. It's like anything else. You can't do anything unless you have the intention to create it in the first place. And there's an old universal saying that I love. What you focus on expands. So if you focus on a problem, you get more. So you focus on a solution. If you want answers, focus on them. People will appear in your life situations. Uh, you know, you end up in an afterlife conference, the one you've just come from. I'm associated with the afterlife conference here in Australia, having a second one next January. And there, there are answers all over the place, but a lot of the answers are inside ourselves. And once we start looking the word is intuition. That just means wisdom from within. We know. It's locked away in our subconscious. We can get it out. We can do it through meditation, but we need to want to do it and not just continually live on a surface kind of existence, just worrying about daily activities. You know, sex, drugs, rock and roll. Yeah, it's fun, but there's a lot more. Well, I was going to say, too, there's no question that... Uh whatever is going on, on in this universe uh, is manifested by us. And some people are better at it than others. Some people are more intuitive than others. I don't know why, but that's the case. 
Look, I think I, I was equated to, say, the ability to play tennis. Uh, most people can get on a tennis court and somehow get a ball across a net. Some will go on to become quite reasonable players socially. Others will go on to be comp players. Others will go on to be professionals. And others will end up like Roger Federer, um, one of the greatest champions of all time. But not everybody can be a Federer. Not everybody can make a living out of it. But it's there. It's a basic talent. But if we really want to improve, we can take lessons, just like we can take tennis or golf lessons or whatever, and we can improve on a basic ability. But not everybody wants to do that, and, and that's understandable. It's, it's not easy. It's a lot of work. Sure. But isn't everything in life that's worthwhile? Absolutely. No question about it. No Goodbyes, that's the name of the book. Barry Eaton, our special guest. And Barry, you still got the uh, RadioOutThere.com show, right? I do, yes. I do a weekly program on the Internet. And it's, I was just thinking before when I listened to some of your guests and have a look at them, uh, mine is a, a very, very minuscule version of Coast to Coast because I like to cover many different topics the way you do, George. And there are so many fantastic people out there that make us think in every direction in life. I do it in my books in the afterlife, but there are so many other things, aren't there, that, yeah, we can sit back and, and watch frothy, bubbly stuff on television or whatever. Otherwise, we can get out there and start to investigate and, and take charge of our own life. Australians love these subjects too, don't they? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, I find that um, so do Americans. I'm, I've chatted to a lot of American uh, people in, in the States in the last few weeks uh, while um, talking about my book, and I'm absolutely amazed at some of the wonderful questions and the, the ability that people in the States have got to, to look at uh, much deeper subjects. Well, Barry, in a moment, you're going to hear those questions again from our audience on Coast to Coast AM. And welcome back to Coast to Coast with Barry Eaton, our special guest with his work, No Goodbyes, as we talk about the other side. And we'll do so with some calls and your questions next on Coast to Coast AM. No goodbyes, that's what we say. And I like that, by the way. It's a good title. How did you come up with it, Barry? Well, it's funny you should mention that, George, because my publishers in Australia asked me for some suggested titles. And I meditated on it one night, and my spirit team that I talked about before came through with that title and another one. I can't remember what the other one was because everybody jumped at no goodbyes because that's basically what happens. There are no goodbyes because we can meet up with people again. When people talk about the afterlife and they are kind of puzzled, confused about their loved ones, how do we handle that? How do you tell someone what it's like and really teach them what's on the other side? Well, I guess we can only teach what we know, and if we know nothing at all, then we can't teach or help anybody, can we? And no. I think that's been the problem, that so many people are operating from a complete platform of ignorance. But the more we can learn, more and find out. I mean, there's some fantastic material out there, as I said, not only my books, but I've uh, been able to contact quite a few different people in, in my time and interview people um, on my own radio program. So you can build this information up, but it's, it's once again, it's your choice. And the more you can be convinced within yourself that there is something else, and indeed uh, we are just here on one journey of many, once you can do that and believe in it yourself, it's a lot easier to talk to other people about it. You talk about the cryogenics in your book. 
freezing of individuals. Yeah. I think Larry King wanted to do that, didn't he? Yes, I think I mentioned that in the book, actually, that Larry King has set himself up for that. And, of course, Walt Disney did as well. And, um, oh, I don't know, it's, it's one of those things that all, uh, all you're doing is preserving the body because the soul has moved on. It's the same thing that I found out that when we're in a coma, the soul actually leaves the body. It comes and goes a bit, but uh, it's, it's taken away and cocooned and protected. So if the body basically perishes... Even though we're keeping it alive in a very artificial sort of a way, the soul has moved on. And when I asked the guys in spirit about this, they said, well, yes, you might be able to revive a body in 50, 100, 200 years' time. But that soul that was Walt Disney or whoever will have moved on and, and maybe has had several other lifetimes in between. So all of a sudden, another opportunity might arise for another spirit to say, oh, yeah, I wouldn't mind being in Walt Disney's body and um, convince the powers that be that they should be, have a turn in that body. So it's one of those sort of strange things, isn't it? Favorite uh, part of no uh, goodbyes, what would that be? My favorite part? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's like saying which of your children is your favorite. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is. I, I, I never thought about my favorite. I, I guess... Part of the favourite is being able to keep up my communication with my late partner, Judy, uh, via um, my two lovely mediums, Val and also um, Ezio, but also to find out that she is part of my spirit team, that, uh, that John Dingle is, and uh, we talked about it in the first half of the program, that uh, for those people who may have just joined us, I've, I've got a spoke spirit who brings through uh, information from a whole lot of different spirits, and I've now found that Judy is one of those spirits. And the other really nice thing about George is that my father is also part of that, and, and my good friend Ezio brought through my father, having never met my father, having never met anybody, and it was so fascinating because he said, oh, there's somebody just arrived, and there's always a gatekeeper from yeah. the other side. They opened the gate, and he said, you know, and Ernie, and I said, yeah, Ernie was my late father-in-law from my previous marriage. And he said, oh, Ernie came through and a bit of a couple of messages there. And then he said, look, he wants to bring through Bill. I thought, I don't believe this. Because Ernie, my late father-in-law, and my late father's name was Bill, they were great mates. As soon as they huh. met, they clicked because they were both ex-Masons. So, of course, the secret handshake, the full routine. And... Here they come through together. Ezio had no idea. So to be reconnected with my father, whom I never really felt a, a connection I would have liked during our life together, that was well, it was awesome, really. Was it emotional for you? Very. Yeah. Very emotional. And since then, interestingly enough, a couple of hours, I was at comparing the Afterlife conference here in Australia earlier this year and seeing it. And one of the mediums in the night that they had the, uh, the medium show brought my father through once again to give me some messages to say how proud he is of the work that I'm doing in the afterlife. Now, I had tears running down my face at that stage. It does. That almost happened to me uh, at this event uh, when they conjured up by the good old dad because that would have been the first time that uh, I've had any communication with him since he passed on. Yeah. And, uh, it, so how does that make it, you feel? It, 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 it gets to you. It really does. You know, whether you believe it's real or not, it still is very surreal, Barry. Really but does. if you listen to your heart, 
you'll know if it's real or not. Yes. And you want it to be real, though. Of course. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, you you don't have to be all that bright, I don't think, to realize that when you're being scammed by some of these false mediums. But when a medium is brought through other information that is so relevant and so provable, and then they come up with something like your father or your mother, mm-hmm. somebody really, really close to you comes through, then you know that they are not scamming you. If, if, no. this, if this was trickery, it was done very well. Yeah. Okay, let's go to the phones. Let's pick it up by going to John in Wichita, Kansas, first-time caller. Hi, John. Go ahead. Hi. How you doing? Okay. Hey, I have a question. Uh, I believe in a past life uh, I must have really done something wrong Uh-oh. because <laughs> this particular life is I've had nothing but bad luck my entire life. <laughs> Well, you might be right there. Barry, what do you think? Well, the thing is that we do come back from lifetime to lifetime and we bring karma, unresolved karma, back with us. We all have a life purpose and we we combine both destiny and free will from what I've been told. So that if, if you are having a few problems there, they are problems of your own choosing and maybe of your own making, John, from previous existences. And you've come back this time to have another go at them. So instead of letting it get you down and saying, oh, this is, a, this is hell on earth and what am I doing here? Work out what you can do. Be positive. As I said before, focus on the solution rather than the problem. And then that's how you can start to move beyond this. Do we pull this black cloud over our heads on our own? Well, we can co-create, that's for sure. And we've got to take self-responsibility. That's something else I've found, George, that... Um, it, 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 a message that's come to me from the afterlife and something I've always believed in anyway, that whatever we do, we have to take responsibility for it. So if there's a dark cloud there, it's something that we've either created now or co-created in the previous life. Let's go to George in St. Louis, Wildcard. Hey, George, good morning. <clears throat> good morning, George. Good morning, Barry. Oh, Barry, by the way, I just love that Austra- Australian accent. I, I can hear you talk all day. Hey, George, I don't have an Australian accent. If I had an Australian accent, I'd sound like this, mate. How you going? I'm not a real audience as I talk like that. Good eye. <laughs> here's, here's, here's what I've always wondered about, uh, the creation itself. Uh, God, is, he's an architect, a designer. How does he go from the virtual, you know, the plan, you know, as an architect, and, and how does he go from that to materializing, um, you know, the universe, earth, uh, you know, uh, matter, energy. How how does he go from the designer stage into what is the the, the real, the the actual universe itself? I don't don't understand the transition. That that is a, a very wild question there. Um, I wish I had the, a, a succinct answer to give you there, but whatever it is in the creative process, going from pure energy of spirit and then with worlds creating and other planets, and here we today find that there's potential water on Mars. Life is everywhere. It grows, and this is just part of that growth process. But how it actually happens physically or biologically that's way beyond my pay grade. You've done some readings for people. 
you do a, you do probably more than I thought you did. How did you perfect that? Uh, with practice, George. I, like everybody else, I make mistakes, but we're here to make mistakes. I would say that, you know, you go to Hollywood, you're making a film. If this take doesn't work, uh, we do another take. So that's called a mistake. Uh, nobody worries about that. You dump the mistakes and use the takes that you really want in your final film. So this is our life. Any mistakes that we have, let them go. Move on. And I've learned and I've, I've grown like you. I've um, dealt with a lot of people by taking phone calls on radio programs. and You, you learn to work with people after a while and then just going into a totally different level of intuitive work by the means of astrology and other intuitive areas that I can use, it, it just helps me to be able to help people to help themselves. Uh, it's a whole process of that. But the more you do, it's like anything, the more you do, the better you get. What has been for you the most frightening aspect of the work you've done? I don't think I've been frightened at all, to be quite honest. Really? Yeah, that's a good thing. What, what's to be frightened of, I, I would ask myself. I mean, the only concern that you have is that I never, ever want anybody to go away from a consultation with me feeling worse than when they arrive. Not that I'm doing a Pollyanna routine or anything like that, but I want people, and it always happens, that what we've investigated together changes their energy from being maybe down and a bit depressed or all over the place. At the end, saying, oh, look, I feel so much better after that. I feel as though I've got answers, I've got something to work with. So to me, uh, there would be no more concern than not being able to help people that way. Let's go to Donna in Cleveland, Ohio. Hello, Donna. Go ahead. Hello. Good morning, Barry. Good morning. good morning, George. I'm elated to talk to you. This is like a miracle for me. Okay. Now, I have this situation. Now, a few years back um, in my family, there was a baby that was murdered, and um, they affected me, just hugely affected me, and it's still actually not past it. Okay, now I studied up on it for a really long time on how to make contact with this child. And um, and I honestly believe that I did, okay? And I'm going with 99.9% that I, I honestly did because what I did was I meditated and, and I went to a, a peaceful, quiet place, and the baby appeared. And the baby spoke to me. And when he spoke to me, he said, um, he, he actually addressed me as Donna. And I stopped him right there and I said, no, Aunt Donna, because I don't allow my nieces and nephews to call me by my first name. <laughs> so I, I said, no, Aunt Donna. And he said, you have to forgive her. And I said, no, I don't think I ever can, which was the wrong thing to say. And, and I knew right away it was the wrong thing to say, but it's still in my heart. It, I wasn't there, and actually, I don't think it's still there. And and I think that that might be this like this lesson on earth that I'm needing to learn because I'm not a real forgiving person, and especially when it came to this. So all I'm looking for is if you could possibly, if there's any way that you could give me any kind of confirmation that I actually did make contact with this baby. Well, I think you've got to look inside your own heart for that. And if you feel 99.9% .9 sure, that's a pretty high sort of a figure you put on that. Right, right. I, you know, I just thought, well, maybe, you know, is, you know, is there any way you can tell me, yes, you absolutely can. <laughs> but only you will know that. 
And, and the thing is that if the information that came back to you is relevant and forgiveness is a message that you need to have in this lifetime, then that is a very pertinent answer. Now, to be able to connect, people might be thinking, well, how can I connect with the energy of a baby? Well, don't forget the soul of that baby could be a fairly old soul who just came in for, and, and quite often this will happen, the child will, will only live for a certain time, but the lessons in that child's brief life can be far and wide spread. And in this instance, this child's very, very brief existence has, has affected you so much that when you did communicate, you've got a message that could change your entire life. And the message can be coming from the advanced soul that inhabited that baby's little body for just such a brief period of time. But going back into the afterlife, knowing that that was the message, then when you did make communication, you were able to be helped. But then again, as I said before, it's self-responsibility. You're the one, the only one, that can work out what to do and how to do it. Well said, Harry. Well said. Donna, thanks for the call. Shirley's in Indianapolis. Go ahead, Shirley. Get you in here. Good morning. Hi. Um, um, I have all, all kind of people in the family that have passed, and, and I communicate with them in my own way, and I feel like they help me out in my own way. But now at work, we've had spirits and we've had little things that happen, but, you know, you can always pass it off as something else. So one night I was there working late, and there was another fellow there, which was across the lab from me. But um, I'm grinding at my grinder, and I get this push, this huge push, like somebody just bounced up against me. And I'm like, what? And I turned around, and, you know, of course I knew there was nobody there, but you got to look. And, and I couldn't figure it out, so I just thought it was a sign from somebody to tell me to leave now. Maybe I'll get in an accident if I leave later. You know, I don't know what their purpose was that that happened. But what I wondered, I tried to call it out and talk to it when I'm by myself and, and uh, you know, no response. I just wonder why, just like on those hunters, why they're there and then all of a sudden they're gone. You think they, like, pass through dimensions or... What do you think the reason is that you know they're there, you've had concrete evidence, and then there's nothing else? Look, there are many answers to that question, Shirley, but it's, it's a matter of understanding what that shove in the back meant to you. Was it a bit of a gentle push or was it a, a violent sort of a push? I had a, an instance where I was helping clear a house a few years ago and the yeah, owner was giving a real push down out. the stairs. <laughs> and, and, you know, they, they, they fled out into the morning and they were really upset. But if you're getting the gentle push, the message is coming through. Maybe you've got other messages, but you just didn't listen. So this time they said, oh, for heaven's sake, let's give her a bit of a push in the back and still she'll wake up this time. So, I mean, it's very difficult to give a defined answer to that, but I would say whatever message you got out of it from that push, have a listen, have a think about it. What about the Ouija boards, Barry? What do you think of them? Oh, can be dangerous, George. Yes. Yeah, because, I mean, you're opening a, a potential can of worms there, and any kind of medium or good psychic is using protection. And if, if people who have got no idea... Uh, about using these things, open this energy up. All sorts of dark spirits and energies can attach themselves to you. So it's not something that uh, is recommended to be played around with. Do you ever dab dabble with it yourself? I did, actually. Uh -huh. <laughs> Many years ago, we connected with a, a red Indian, would you believe, who talked about 
dying just outside the walls of Chicago in the Great Fire of Chicago. I'd never heard of this. Anyway, I went and investigated it, and exactly what came through in the Ouija board was true. Wow, that, that really... Uh, I haven't played with it since. I love it. Barry, stay with us. We're going to come back in just a moment here on Coast to Coast AM and take some final phone calls with you. Barry Eaton with us, his book, No Goodbyes, his website, a couple of them, by the way, all linked up for you at coasttocoastam.com. So make sure you uh, go and spend a little time looking at some of the other things that Barry has done. We'll be right back with final calls. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. Final segment with our guest, of course, Barry Eaton. No goodbyes. Barry, I'm glad that you devoted a chapter to dreams in your book. Very powerful area of communication with the other side, isn't it? Oh, very much so, George. And I guess that probably came out in the Afterlife Conference you've just come from as well, the power of dreams. Because that's the, usually the first point of contact when somebody passes over. And so many people have the dreams that they just accept the fact, oh, well, I've dreamed about the person that's passed over. They don't realize that it is an initial contact just to say, hey, I'm still here. I'm, a, I'm not dead. I'm alive. It's me. And quite often we'll have these dreams because at night the body needs to sleep, but the soul, the spirit, doesn't. It's energy. It just moves away from the body and connects with the afterlife. We can connect with our guides. We can connect with people in spirit, all sorts of things that are happening. We don't always remember it, of course, but this dream contact is just absolutely vital. And the number of people that I've talked to over the years that have said, oh, yes, I dream about such and such um, a person, and they just didn't really put two and two together. Now, I had a most fantastic dream with my late partner, Judy, one night, and... It was about 3 o'clock in the morning, and I dreamed that I was in a house with her on the other side. I knew it was the other side. And we went outside, and we created snow, and I came back in, and I threw a snowball at her. <laughs> she pretend, pretended to get angry, and then we had a big cuddle. And This was a couple of years after she passed. And I woke up in the middle of the night, sat bolt upright in bed, and the tears were streaming down my face. But I knew, I really knew that I had been in touch with her. And I think a lot of people have these dreams, and we need to take notice of them. Let's go to the final calls now as they line up for you. Uh, we'll go to Texas. Denise is there. Hello, Denise. Good evening, gentlemen. Hi. I hope you're having a good evening. We are, and I trust you are listening to the show. Yes, you, I have gotten my education from you. Perfect. Not in school, but from you guys. School of Coast to Coast. Yes, the School of Coast to Coast, yes. Do you give out degrees? Uh, you know what? That would not be a bad idea. <laughs> okay, my question is for Barry uh, about dreams. When I was younger, I used to dream a lot about the Holocaust. And um, I'm wondering, is it possible through my dreams that I was actually there when I was reincarnated? Very possible, Denise. Yes. Any any past life connection that we had can quite often be triggered by very strong associations with a time in history, with a certain personality or, or events. Now, the fact that um, you dream about the Holocaust, and, and it's not just after you've maybe seen a movie on TV or something about it, I presume. No, so, but I had been to, we lived in Heidelberg, Germany, and we used to travel. We went to some of the um, camps. And I did see the ovens and stuff. 
do you think that could have stuck well, in my mind and that's why I started dreaming about it? Look, it could have triggered something subconsciously for sure. I mean, if you had gone to see the camps and then had a dream the night, before, night later or whatever, yes, we could say, well, that's obviously triggered off by your visit. But if it happened sometime afterwards, then it's, I would suggest that it is definitely a trigger in your subconscious. Oh, well, thank you for that. And one more question. Yeah. Um, my father, uh, my biological father I had never met, the man that raised me, my father, um, was a good man, um, but what I was wondering is if my real father, my biological father, is still alive, and if he is, how do you, how can I contact him when he was in the service? You can't find out anything about anybody in the service. No, of course not. No, they, they keep those files very, very tight and secret, don't they? Do you think he's alive? I don't know. I have no idea, but I have never felt close to the father that raised me. How come? I don't know. Unless I heard them, my parents fighting about it. Did he treat you well, though? My father that raised me? Yeah. No. He did not? Mm. No, he was abusive. No, that's not good. I can understand. Denise, I, I, I can't say this for sure, but my intuition tells me your biological father has passed over. Yeah. Um, and I, I just don't feel that he is still with us on the planet in his previous state anyway. So um, maybe if you were able to find yourself a, a really good medium, and we talked about this earlier, finding somebody who's very trustworthy and very genuine, then perhaps if you're really putting out for it and think about it beforehand, do a meditation and go into with a positive aspect of contacting your father, then perhaps you can make this contact. All right, good luck, Denise. Hope that works out for you. Jan's in Brooklyn. Hello, Jan. Howdy. Howdy to you. Um, my favorite question, but you answered it partly, but I also have another question. I bet you uh, do. My favorite question is that I don't think Congress is fair. Why could we just have been there in our previous lifetime? Do we have to suffer now? <laughs> and, and my second question is this. Uh, all the people that you talk to and everything, have, have they told you anything about the future? About the what? The future. Oh, the future. Oh, fair enough. Uh, sorry, I had a bit of a, a, a crumbly line there. Um, yeah, look, my spirit team said we are in for some pretty big changes over the next few years, and it's going to be up to us as to how we cope with them. And I think we're hearing a lot about information like this on the program tonight and from various people that both George and I are interviewing, there are changes. There are changes happening all the time, of course, but there, I think we are in for some pretty big life-changing uh, events over the next few years, according to my spirit contact. I think you're right, too, Barry, and they're not all going to be great and favorable, no. either. No, it's for sure very challenging. Times are changing, aren't they? <laughs> but they never stay the same, George. I mean, you think about the huge changes that happened in the 20th century. Wow. I mean, everything from flight right through oh to God. flying to the moon. A hundred years, from 1900 to 2000. Yeah. Dramatic. And what's happened in the last 15 years? Yeah. And it just goes faster and faster. Yeah. Michael's in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Welcome to the program, Michael. Go ahead. Hello, George. Hi, Michael. Hello, Barry. Thanks for taking my call. Sure thing. I have um, 
two questions and a real quick comment. Okay. I, I think I'm being lied to, but I'm not sure. I can't find it nowhere in the Bible where it says when a child dies, they're under the age of accountability. And my child died, George, I'm sure I've talked to you yeah. about this before, but and I, I want to know for sure, did she really go to heaven? Because um, she did she fall under the age of accountability, which I can't find nowhere in the Bible. That's the first question. And the second one is with respect to all the other listeners, I'll make it really quick. The second question I have is, my son believes he has a real strong guardian angel, and he's been following that guardian angel for quite a long time. And that guardian angel has been telling him to do everything step by step just right. And whenever he hears a bad voice tell him to do something wrong, he refuses to do it. So my question is, did my daughter, when she died of leukemia at five years old, did she really go to heaven? Well, listen to this quote from Matthew 19:14. okay? And it says, this is quoting... I'm sorry, I'm, sorry, I'm going deaf, I, I can't quite hear you. Oh, yeah, he's quoting Jesus, Matthew was. And he basically says, let the little children come to me, do not hinder them, for such belong in the kingdom of heaven. So I, okay, well, what does that mean? I, I, I think your little five-year-old is in heaven. Definitely. Okay, I'll accept that. And then the second thing is, my son's driving me nuts a little bit about this guardian angel. Is he crazy? Well, look, um, we all have guardian angels, but uh, the, the angelic forces are there to help us out. We have guides, we have all sorts of people. They can't change our life for us. But if your son is starting to get some negative messages from what he feels is a guardian angel, then uh, I think he really needs to think about what's happening here because guardian angels don't give you negative messages. Nobody wants to lead you, your son, into uh, problems or trouble or anything like that. So it's, it's something that he really needs to get some maybe, I guess, some help or whatever with. But I would be very suspicious about guardian angels telling people to do dangerous or, or negative things. I, I agree with you, Barry. I think that's something else, totally. Yep. Totally. If you have negative entities trying to convince you to do otherwise, uh, demonic, maybe? Yeah. Well, look at Son of Sam all those years ago, George. I mean, you know, that, that was the dreadful messages that were going through people's head, and we hear this all the time from you know, people who, you know, who have uh, killing sprees on campuses and whatever. They're urged by a voice. Well, you know, it's hard to know where this voice comes from. That's true. Certainly not a divine voice. Let's go to Robert in Baltimore. Hello, Robert. Thanks for holding, sir. Hello, George. You, you still do a great job in managing the, your uh, callers. I'm really impressed. Well, thank you, sir. But, Barry, I have a question that's very, uh, it's, it's a logical uh, conundrum here. And the question is this. Uh, those who have had near-death experiences, often re upon their return to the living, uh, they often report having seen relatives sometimes of many past generations. They're not only a parent, an aunt, but maybe a grandparent. Sure. And my question is then, how can that soul or spirit be both in the spirit world 
be hanging around there where they can be reached and also then return to enter another container or a new human body in order to continue their evolution to a higher spiritual level. It doesn't seem like they can do both. Well, we did answer that question before, Robert, so maybe you weren't listening at that stage, but we don't always bring back, well, none of us bring back our entire soul energy with us into each lifetime. And uh, that there's always an aspect of us that is left in the afterlife, in the world of spirit. But that part of us that is inhabiting a body in this lifetime is just a, uh, a section of our overall energy. So our over-soul, our higher self, whatever label you want to put on it, is still there. And that's how we can connect sometimes with people who are in spirit that uh, may well have reincarnated. That would explain it, Barry, because I've always wondered just how can they be in two places at one time? They literally physically are. They are. They are indeed. Let's go to Paula Enterprise, Kansas. Get you in here before the break. Hi, Paula. Hi. How are you guys doing? Good. Everything's fine. Good. <clears throat> I got a question for Barry. Um, my husband passed away in 1998, and uh, right before he passed away, we started to have issues. We had been married 20-some years. We had three beautiful kids, and... I don't know, we were growing apart, and I could tell. And all of a sudden, he died suddenly from the pneumonia complications hmm. from it. He got sepsis in his blood, and it just took him really fast. And because of that, I never had any closure with him. You know, it wasn't like I could tell him goodbye, or he was gone, you know, in the hospital, and I could only go in and see him afterwards. My question is, do you think those issues will get resolved before I pass, or do you think that those issues will always be there? Look, we can get closure with with our loved ones in spirit, Paula. I've helped people get forgiveness, and, and people in spirit sometimes come through and ask for forgiveness from their children because they haven't looked after them or done as much as they could for them. And the fact that you didn't get closure in this instance doesn't mean to say that you can't think about this person and ask for, for closure and open your heart to it. That's the most important thing. As I said earlier, this is where our spirit attaches itself to the body. Our soul energy is around our heart. So if you start getting into touch with your soul energy as opposed to just your head energy, then we can do all sorts of things. We can communicate. And believe me, once we start doing this, they know in the world of spirit that we are thinking about them and communicating with them. We may not be able to always hear their messages back again, but they certainly know. So have the closure and think about what it is you want to be able to say and get that message across, but do it from the heart. Barry, we are out of town, out of time and going out of town. Give us your website, if you would. Okay, my radio program is Radio Out There, three words put all together, radiooutthere.com. I've got links across to my other websites from there. But my latest book, No Goodbyes, you can get that on BarryEatonNoGoodbyes.com. Great. Barry, thanks. Always great talking to you. Thank you, George. Super guest up there in Australia. I love those Aussies. I really do. Remember Fiona Horn, our good witch? She's Australian as well. We've got to get her, her back on as well. We've got a great series of shows for you for the entire week, so make sure you stick with us. Plus, we're going to start as we start moving into October 
we start building up to Halloween. For Nathan Staten, Gina Salvati, Dan Galante, Tom Danheiser, Lisa Lyon, Lex Lonehood, Sean Laudasur, Timothy Banal, Stephanie Smith, Chris Borelson, George Knapp, I'm George Norrie. Somewhere out there on Coast to Coast AM, we'll see you on our next edition. Until then, be safer. Good evening, everyone. You're in the right place at the right time. This is Coast to Coast AM, blasting out of the Mojave Desert like a Scirocco, blazing across the land, slamming into your radio like a supercharged nanoparticle of unobtainium. Greetings from the boldest, bawdiest, most outrageous city in the world, the planetary capital of sun, fun, sin, sex, and secrets, my not-so-humble hometown, Las Vegas, Nevada. My name is George Knapp, your occasional host, designated driver of the airwaves, and moderator of tonight's upcoming cacophonous cavalcade of conversation. Looks like we all survived the combination blood moon, supermoon, and lunar eclipse, a series of celestial events that I guess won't happen the same way until 2033. So, folks, we all got some breathing room here. The world doesn't look like it's going to end tonight. Uh, the desert southwest, of course, is a great place to view something like that, uh, except when there's cloud cover, which is what we had over much of the Las Vegas Valley tonight. So I'm going to have to settle for seeing pictures and videos that people send to me or uh, whatever appears on social media. Hope you get out to take a peek tonight. The sky was clear wherever you live. I love that stuff. Got an email from one of our listeners right before we went on the air. Jeff is a pilot and was flying cross-country tonight got to see the eclipse from 39,000 feet, said it was absolutely spectacular. I can only imagine. So, Jeff, if you're listening, send us some pictures. We'll put them on the website. Uh, You know, we don't spend enough time looking up at the night sky, most of us anyway, especially those of us who live in urban areas. There could be stuff flying over our heads, and we'd never see it. In fact, there is stuff flying around over our heads all the time, and we never give it a second thought. You ever go out on one of those sky-viewing, sky-watching get-togethers where someone brings along uh, night vision equipment and points it toward the sky? All kinds of strange little objects flitting around up there, things that, you know, they look like stars for a minute, and they're not really stars at all. They suddenly, they're sitting there for a while, and then they move. You've probably seen videos posted online of some of that stuff. I mean, most likely these are aircraft, uh, some kind of craft that we humans have made for some purpose, some of them satellites that are supposed to be up there. Some of them may be surveillance platforms that we're not supposed to know about or other advanced craft that they may or may not tell us about someday, even though our tax dollars built them and paid to launch them, whatever they are. Tonight we delve into mysteries of the skies with two very different perspectives. Kevin Randall is, I guess you could call him one of the most prolific UFO writers in the world and one of its most dogged investigators in modern ufology. He is, even his detractors would say he's meticulous. Uh, He doesn't really ascribe to orthodox ufology, if you can call it that. He calls him as he sees him, and as a result of that, he's sort of found himself at odds at times with some of the leading lights of the flying saucer world. He's been working on some new stuff that takes a fresh look at incidents and cases that he says need to be examined in a much larger perspective. Uh, This isn't uh, just an American phenomena, after all. While we Americans sometimes think of ourselves as kind of like the center of all life on Earth, if not the universe, 
that's really kind of a provincial and inaccurate way to look at things, especially this topic. So tonight, in the second half of the program, uh, Kevin will join us to talk about his latest project. It's called the UFO Dossier, 100 Years of Government Secrets, Conspiracies, and Cover-Ups. Sounds like it's right up our alley. But before we get to that, you know, I mentioned on the program from time to time my personal opinion that uh, what the subject needs is not necessarily more cases, although, you know, more cases are always good, but what it really needs are fresh ideas, a, a new perspective, a fresh prism through which we can view this same subject matter. And boy, we got one tonight. Eric Willett comes at it from a unique vantage point. He's a professor of defense studies at the Royal Military College of Canada. So he works right in the thick of Canada's defense establishment. I imagine he knows many of the muckety-mucks of their military. But at the same time, he's intensely interested in parapsychology and UFOs. And it's from that perspective that he's taken on the subject tonight. He's, he's not the first to suggest that some UFO events have sort of a parapsychological explanation. But his new book is maybe the most ambitious treatment of that premise in it. He sort of reanalyzes some of the best-known cases. You'll know some of these. You'll know them right off the bat, some of the best ones of all time. And it really left me scratching my head, and I mean that in a good way. It really made me think, and I think that that's exactly what he set out to do. I'm really looking forward to this conversation, and it starts in just a minute or two. Uh, our webmaster, Tim Benall, and I have put together a little online newscast of sorts uh, with items and oddities we've accumulated from various places around the world. Stories we think will be of interest to our Coast listeners, we put it on the Coast website under the heading NAPS News. Several stories that are directly related to our main subject matter this evening. A recent UFO report from Livermore, California, intriguing case. There's a science paper there speculating on just how rare advanced civilizations, intelligent civilizations, might be in our little corner of the cosmos. Uh, interesting story about crop circle formations. One of the topics that we're going to explore tonight is whether governments purposely spread disinformation to keep us off balance and confused about esoteric topics, UFOs in particular. Uh, this piece looks at government fingerprints on the crop circle mystery. Did the Ministry of Defense pay people to create crop circles just to muddy the waters a bit? And I've wondered that myself for a long time. This story takes a look at it. Oh, and a story about teleportation. Now, it's still a long way before we can, you know, head down to the transponder room and zip from the Enterprise to the surface of a planet. But scientists are making slow advances in the technology of teleportation, believe it or not. And then, you know, since Halloween is a month or so away here, a really interesting piece about Houdini, Harry Houdini, and his fabled experiment designed for the afterlife something to carry out after he was gone. If you don't know about it, this is a good chance to get caught up on that. It's a really interesting piece if you want to check it out. That and more in the NAPS News section on the Coast website. And while you're there, why not check out how to become a Coast Insider? Now, I've mentioned this deal in the past. It's still a bargain. For pennies a day, you can get access to a vast archive of Coast programs, previous shows, your favorite guests and favorite topics. You can listen as often as you want, over and over, anytime, day or night. You don't have to get fired because you stayed up till 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning listening, but we'd like you to do that if you, if you can. You can listen on whatever device works best for you, plus you get exclusive access to 
various insider events and monthly chats. You can check it out when you get a moment. Right now, though, you need to shimmy out of those clothes, jump into some PJs, fetch Fido and the kitty, pour a big steaming cup of mud, plop yourself down, and crank up that radio. In a moment, Professor Eric Wellett is here to tell us why he thinks some UFO cases and events are not visitors from beyond, but rather originate right here as parapsychological manifestations. I'm George Knapp, and this is Coast to Coast AM. Welcome back. Eric Wellett is a professor of defense studies at the Royal Military College of Canada and at the Canadian Forces College, which is Canada's Joint Staff and War College. He has a Ph.D. in sociology from York University. He is the liaison officer for Canada with the Parapsychological Association, He's published parapsychological work in the Australian Journal of Psychology and other publications, and his research work often focuses on military sociology and war studies. His new book is Illuminations, the UFO Experience as a Parapsychological Event, and it is a great read. Eric, welcome to the program. Thank you, George. Uh, uh, so tell me about your how you ended up teaching where you teach. Is that what you set out to do, or it just worked out that way? Ah, it's a bit of both, actually. I, I had an interest in military affairs from a very young age, and uh, but then I let it go away for a while, and then I did the PhD, and then eventually there was an opening, and then I said, hey, why not? And it worked out, so um, going back to my uh, earlier interest in life. Uh, I, you know, you travel, I would think, in interesting circles then. You interact with military folks on a regular basis. I guess some of your students, I would presume, have, have climbed up to the highest echelon of the Canadian military, and, and yet uh, you, you are not uh, secretive about your interest in esoteric topics, UFOs, parapsychology. Has it ever caused you problems in those circles? No, actually, it's it's quite surprising. Uh, all my work, uh, you know, I have to report of uh, on, on the things I publish, and uh, it's on my door at my work, I, and uh, submit to the command of the college my publications, which are distributed to the chain of command, and I never heard anything, ever. Have you ever heard it from the UFO groups, Canadian UFO groups, who say, well, this guy, he's part of the defense. I'll just, I just wanted to get to this conspiracy angle right away because I can hear uh, American uh, listeners thinking about this. Well, he must be part of the plot. Uh, I didn't get much of that, actually. Uh, I guess my because my approach is quite different than what most people is, uh, would think or see. Um, it, it just don't uh, think that I'm with the conspiracy because I'm too um, I'm too off in terms of uh, the extraterrestrial uh, hypothesis. Right. Um, and what is it that you teach in a, in a class when the students are sitting in your classroom? What are they learning? Uh, well, I'm teaching the senior officers and uh, to get them ready to um, handle much larger organizations. I'm teaching sociology. Uh, but, you know, better understanding of dynamics of larger groups, and so they can be more effective uh, in terms of using indirect leadership and better understanding all the implications of commands, because nowadays warfare involves, you know, so many other organizations outside the military. Uh, that So to get them thinking about uh, how you can handle civilians and how you can work with other countries, so it's the kind of... Um, Getting them ready to be really senior managers of, of military affairs. You mentioned in your book, I, of course, you have a PhD, but you mentioned in the book uh, somewhere, I think, that you have a defense, you have a clearance, you have a security clearance. Uh, 
I do. I do. Yes. Do you ever, in your class, have you ever used UFOs as sort of a, a teaching uh, aid, as, a, as an example? Use it as a, as a way? Uh, yes, a few times I use this, uh, but uh, I will give you a specific example. Um, you know, the, uh, the face on Mars, um, and then I, uh, I tell people you know what it is, and most people do. And I showed a newer picture of this, which is quite different. Uh, and then, so, do you know the second picture? A lot of people don't know what it is, so I tell them, well, it's the same picture. But then I would say, how do you know it's the same picture? Have you been on Mars? Have you taken pictures on Mars? And then obviously no. So, so then I tell them, the only reason why you know is because NASA told you that picture. And, it might, and there's nothing wrong with that, but the, and illustrating the issue that knowledge is based on trust. No, do you trust NASA to tell you that's the same picture or not? So I use a, a few examples like that here and there. Yes. Uh, what's unique about you is uh, you come from, you know, you interact in military circles. Uh, you were in academic circles. Those two uh, arenas are generally hostile to the UFO topic. You're from both of them, and yet you are not hostile to it. You are just, your premise is we need to look at it at a different perspective, right? That's that's true, and and uh, my personal experience, and I'm I'm been there for a number of years now, and we have uh, officers from other countries, including the United States, and uh, my sense, and I have discussions with people about UFOs a number of times, and my sense is that people in the military they're quite indifferent to it, uh, uh, and they it's just an issue that you know you, you read in the newspaper once in a while, some a few will have a personal interest in it. But by and large, uh, the military, I would say, in their, from their perspective anyway, they have bigger fish to fry than dealing with strange things in the sky, which um, probably some of the uh, people uh, hearing that will be surprised, but that's that's been my experience with well, uh, over I, the years. I think that's true here for the military now, but there was a time when that was not true, and we're going to get into that a little bit. You make the point early in your book, and I really do enjoy the book, that you you don't think there's any active cover-up as far as you know. They simply don't uh, think about it at all. I mean, you know, when Project Blue Book was canceled in this country in 1969, uh, as you mentioned in the, in the book, there was a conclusion that they reached and the Condon Committee reached that as far as we can tell, UFOs are not a threat to national security. And that is sort of the perspective you think is, that is per pervasive now, both in your country and here in the States, right? That's correct. Uh, the, uh, the, in Canada and the United States, they, they had to deal with that phenomenon early in the late 40s and through the 50s. But then after many investigations, and different in Canada than in the U.S., but they came to the same conclusions. And they, if we look at other countries uh, at different dates and different times with their own research program, they came to the same conclusion that it's not dangerous. Don't know what it is. Some cases are very weird, but it's not dangerous. And and the military, uh, from having limited resources as as usual, uh, that's always their 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 tune. Uh, cannot do research on things that are not related to national security. So that's a perspective I've seen over and over and over in many other countries. And I know that there are exceptions. You know that there are exceptions to that. I've thought about those those cases where there are overflights of U.S. nuclear missile bases in which something tinkered with the launch control codes. 
that happened in Russia as well. In fact, in the case that I had researched, that their Ministry of Defense said that the missiles were enabled. They were ready to launch, and there was nothing they could do about it. So in some cases, there are direct uh, national security implications. There are a lot of intrusions over military bases that we can't explain, um, uh, UFOs following planes and things of that sort. I mean, there are interactions between our military and something that's unknown, Yet, as you say, in general, they haven't attacked us. So I guess that's how they get away with it. Well, yes. I mean, uh, you know, if you look at the bigger picture, uh, this, this is an odd phenomenon that sometimes, yes, may uh, raise alarm and concern, but it's a very elusive one. It's a very hard to explain. And uh, in the end, you know, uh, it, it's not dangerous. So, I mean, so far we haven't had any... Uh, anything dangerous out of it? Some people, some I know a pilot crashed a mantle in the 50s, but it was of his own fear. Um, but so the phenomenon itself is, so it doesn't seem to be a dangerous one, even though it may cause some alarms here and there. I, I won't dwell on this. I'll just have one more uh, question for you, and then we'll move on to the central premise of your book. And when Blue Book was canceled. There was a memo that came out, the Bolander memo, from a, a general, an American general, that said, look, all cases involving national security matters, those files will go to the place where they've always gone, uh, and they closed Blue Book, suggesting that there are, is another place where cases involving national security go, which would explain why the public and most of the military never see it. It's, um, you know, a security clearance required, compartmentalized, Somewhere there's a pile of stuff that most of us, I would presume, including you, don't get to see. Well, I, I've seen some reports uh, about UFOs uh, that were then classified and now declassified. Very boring stuff, by the way. And <laughs> the issue is not the UFO that causes the classification. It's how the UFO event is being reported. So if it's on a new radar system or it is uh, some operation overseas that they didn't want the Russians to know about, that's what's classified, not so much the UFO event. And that's oftentimes a, a misperception. I have seen a lot of times and people reporting, oh, there's a classified file on UFOs. It's not the UFO that makes the file classified. It's, it's what the military were doing with equipment uh, and in regards to, you know, adversaries, whether it was the Soviet Union or other countries nowadays. Let's talk about how your, uh, your view, as expressed in this book, Illuminations, how it evolved. You've had two experiences. One sort of an experience when you were young, um, uh, where your brothers, I guess, saw something, and then something that you saw yourself as an adult. Tell me about those and how they influenced uh, your thinking on this topic. Uh, sure. The, the first experience I had, I was uh, it was in the mid 1970s. I was about uh, eight, nine years old, and uh, my brother saw something in the sky, a UFO, and it was in the evening, and they were very excited about this. And then one of them uh, grabbed my dad's uh, binoculars and looking at the thing, and then I started to bite. I want to see it. I want to see it. Then eventually, I, they gave me the binoculars, but I was looking everywhere, and I could not see anything. Um, so and then my, when my parents arrived, there was nothing to see in the sky. So that was uh, for, for for me it was an interesting experience because I was not a witness to a UFO per se. But I was witness to a UFO event, kind of create a different uh, perspective on on the whole UFO scene. 
And then many, many years later, um, with my, I was waiting for my kids outside the store and a uh, cool night in February, and then I saw a light in the sky. And so I thought it was Venus at first, but my, my, I was constantly attracted to that light. I keep looking at it. And eventually that light just zipped away uh, on, in the sky and disappeared in a couple of seconds. So that was uh, quite an interesting experience. And it's sort of, I mean, it, the, your theory didn't spring into your head full-blown at that point. I mean, it took a lot of time over the years. Uh, you mentioned in your book that when you got your Ph.D., you were thinking about UFOs. I mean, you, uh, you were thinking about it in the context of how can I use my doctorate to pursue this, at least at some level, right? That's true. That's true. I decided to to investigate uh, the UFO phenomenon and and take it like I would do any other uh, academic project. You know, All right. Well, it it uh, culminates with this book, Illuminations: The UFO Experience as a Parapsychological Event. And when we come back, we're going to let you give us that theory in a nutshell. John Fogarty sounds like a road we're taking tonight. Mystic Highway is the tune. We'll be right back with more Coast to Coast AM. You were probably wondering to yourself, what song is Nathan playing there until you heard that uh, guitar riff? It's uh, Led Zeppelin bringing on home. That line in that song goes, gone higher all aboard. Lyrics sort of sound like an invitation to jump on a spaceship. That's from 1969. We're talking with Professor Eric Wellett about his new book, Illuminations. Uh, he's not saying that UFO experiences are not real. He's just saying that they're something maybe other than what we think they are. It might be even weirder than the idea of visitors from other planets or other dimensions. We're going to jump into that in a moment here on Coast to Coast AM. Dr. Eric Wellett is our guest. He's here to tell us about his uh, new book, Illuminations, the UFO Experience as a Parapsychological Event. Uh, Eric, go ahead and jump into it. Give us, in a nutshell, what you mean by that. Uh, what I did with my book is essentially taking uh, a model that was developed by a German parapsychologist. His name is Walter von Lukadu, who studied extensively poltergeist events. And uh, he found that poltergeist tends to follow the same pattern over and over and over in four steps. One is a uh, surprise. It starts gently. And then it starts to rise in intensity and then goes down a bit and then disappears. And what I did is I compared his approach to uh, poltergeist and apply it to uh, UFO waves and see if there are structural similarities between how a UFO wave uh, behaves over time versus a poltergeist. And, and I found a lot of commonalities, a lot of points in common. Uh, and the thing is that uh, at each of those phases, there are people who play a key role because uh, parapsychologists, uh, from their perspective, poltergeist events are, are what we call psi, so uh, psychokinesis or mind over matter that causes those things. And so by extrapolation, I look. let's see if actually we may be the ones also causing some of the UFO uh, events anyway. And uh, so, so a lot, I found a lot of common. I went through a number of case studies and applied the model, and I found it fits quite well uh, with the data. Um, didn't Carl, Carl Jung had something like that, that he thought uh, that UFOs might be a manifestation of our, our, our collective consciousness? Right? This is different from that, though. No, I, I agree that he was probably the first one to, to mention that, but he didn't really uh, go beyond 
um, the idea that there might be some uh, psychokinesis involved. For him, it was more a matter of uh, how we um, we interpret things in the sky. Uh, even these sky, these things are mundane things. It's a bit different. I I agree, or at least I accept the possibility that whatever we see has an uh, animalistic nature, but um, it, I don't think these are really hard things most of the time. Uh, they're uh, something that were in part our own creation, in part uh, maybe shared telepathy about something we think we see but we don't. And uh, other times it's mundane objects that actually create or encourage us to... Uh, you see things that are not there, but because many people see the same things, then there's something anomalistic. Not so much the thing in the sky, but what's happening with the people on the, uh, on the ground, because they have the same vision of something that was, uh, in the end, quite mundane. So that's, that's the approach I take. I can give uh, you uh, one example. Yes. From yeah. the, uh, uh, the Belgian UFO wave of 1989 and 1991, there was a, a family of five or six people, and they, it was at night, and they, they, they was during in the middle of the wave, and they saw above their house, at about 70 feet, if I remember correctly, uh, 100 feet, an object, and very large, with lights, and um, they could see it very clearly. So there was five or six of them, and uh, the data had a camera, so it took three, three pictures of it. And uh, when they developed the pictures, the first picture was just a blurry light. The second picture was almost nothing. And the third one was nothing, uh, which raises a lot of questions about, you know, he had a very good, high-quality observation of a UFO that seems to be an object, a manufactured object. And yet the camera shows you something completely different. And so it's, for me, that's, that's, uh, that's an interesting uh example that we may actually see things uh, and we share those, those views through telepathy, but the actual things in the sky is something different than when actually we actually see. Well, there are a lot of UFO cases in the literature about uh, somebody is standing right next to someone else. Person A sees the craft in the sky. Person B doesn't see anything at all. Um, but that was, uh, a lot of people have figured that's because of some kind of cloaking technology or something like that. Your idea takes it a much different direction. Absolutely. And uh, the thing is that um, if we combine uh, all the evidence in the UFO wave, and then to go back to the poltergeist issue, is that there are very similar um, dynamics going on. These things start usually slowly. Uh, by some people, very surprised, and that's the first phase. It's called a surprise, of, and they don't usually know what it is. But most UFO um, witnesses that have never seen a UFO, they're not sure of what they're saying actually. Uh, at least they don't interpret it necessarily as a extraterrestrial craft. They just say, "I've seen something weird in the sky. I don't know what it is." And then usually what happens is that uh, the both in the poltergeist and the UFO wave, it, it increases in intensity when people who are true believers, either in ghosts or spirits in the case of poltergeist or uh, of the ETH in the case of UFOs, the phenomenon starts to increase in intensity. And uh, for uh, parapsychologist Von Lukedu and I think uh, yeah, 
try to demonstrate the same thing about UFOs is that these people tend to give a very specific interpretation of the anomaly and they displace the issue. So that, that, that phase is called displace in the sense that they give it a, a paranormal or ETH explanation while the phenomenon is just something just very hard to explain. And that one interpretation is not necessarily warranted, but the phenomenon seems to take that shape more and more. Then the third phase is uh, it's called uh, the decline. And that's usually when uh, more critical observers arrive on the scene and they start to put much more stringent uh, observation. They're much more critical of the information. Uh, debunkers. Debunkers, too. Yeah. Yeah, debunkers, and, 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 or just, just people are more critical. Uh, but yeah, definitely debunkers. And then the phenomenon starts to go down. It, it happens in Poltergeist, and in the cases of studying the same kind of phenomenon uh, happen again. And then the last phase is called suppression. Um, so we take a case of uh, poltergeist uh, disturbance. Uh, it's usually very annoying for the authorities because uh, the police have to go, social workers, and, and so on and so forth. And the usual uh, thing is that they, okay, this is something else, you know, there's family problems, family violence, whatever, and they just close the case, but not because there's something to hide, it's just that something they cannot control, and it's very annoying. And I noticed that the authorities, in the case of UFO, have a similar attitude in terms of they have, a, or use the word of Von Lucchetto, you know, a system they cannot control is something problematic. So by declaring that nothing worth a mention happened, there's a way to, uh, to uh, suppress the phenomenon, and usually disappears at that time. So the fact that people are involved in, uh, in their attitude and views seems to influence the intensity, the nature of phenomenon, which then, uh, from a parapsychology perspective, reinforce the notion that we human beings are somehow involved in making these events happening the way they happen. So it, I wonder, what is in physics, what is the mechanism by which we would create this thing? How, how does that work? Uh, well, parapsychologists and physicists have joined uh, forces together. This one a little bit more complicated, but in parapsychology, uh, they have this concept of psi, so mind over matter or um, uh, extrasensory perception, so like telepathy. And um, but physicists and and and, uh, um, and parapsychologists are saying that all of this is about information. Telepathy, for instance, is just accessing information by non-normal means, and mind over matter or psychokinesis is modifying information because matter is not just energy and matter is actually information and the way it's structured, its movement, its spin, etc. And so we just modify the information of that physical thing. So if, so if it's all about information in the end, um, then one of the things we notice uh, when we do physics is this uh, notion of non-locality. What it means is that when you get a bunch of, uh, uh, of um, uh, photons through a splitter, then their spin, each of them, is the same, even though they're completely separated. And we don't know why they keep this exact same spin, even though they're now separated. So this seems to be a connection that is invisible. And so that's called non-locality. Spooky action at a distance, right? 
That's it. That's it. They share the same information without any cause and effect, which is visible. And uh, so we only can do. They said, well, this theory, if we apply it to the macro level instead of the you know atomic level, and apply it to see, it works quite well in the sense that uh, psi um, um, this information is shared uh, when it's it's non-local. So in my head, for instance, I'm thinking about something. And then if somebody had else had, they think the same thing at the same time. So that would be a way to explain how telepathy works. Similarly, uh, in my head, I would like something to move, and it does move. So I, my head, I have that information, and I change information in the other system, which is the object. And um, the thing, so for um, for one look at do. For this to happen, though, uh, the uh, systems of people, objects, or ideas have to be in a state of flux. And so when we have a situation where uh, the, the, the interpretation of the event is displaced, you know, people think that the poltergeist is caused by a spirit instead of a person having some difficulties in the house. By displacing the, the actual focus of, uh, of um, what is the source of the uh, disturbance, then it allows the system to remain in a state of flux and, to, and therefore phenomena keep going on. Well, okay, let's so, stop, stop for a second. So like a poltergeist event, uh, you know, parapsychologists have often uh, noted that there are some similarities in these events. They wonder if poltergeist activity is generated by, for example, teenagers, young people who are having problems going through uh, puberty or whatever, and this somehow erupts because of what's going on inside their head. Same kind of thing you're saying with UFOs. Yes. The the UFO ways I've studied all have a major crisis, either national or international, at the very same time. And that's, that's, I think, uh, where the parallel is. One of them is that somehow we use these uh, means to cry for help, uh, but and uh, like those teenagers, usually they have very difficult relationship with their parents, so they can't really speak out or express their mind, and the, the poltergeist event becomes a alternate way to communicate. And if we think about UFO as a big scale poltergeist of number of people who can't really express themselves because there are some issues. Uh, then, again, we can see the parallel. I can give an example from the uh, 1952 UFO wave around uh, Washington, D.C. Okay, well, we're going to talk about that. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Why, is, why is this explanation, use this as sort of the perspective, why is this explanation for the Washington, D.C. UFO flap better than the assumption that these are visitors from other planets? Because, again, the, the phenomenon... Um, tend to behave like the, the four-step I described. And the dates are, I, I found are, are quite uh, fantastic because they said it happened at the very same time as the Democratic Convention of 1952. And there was a time where uh, McCarthyism was at its height. Uh, there were, uh, right. Yeah, McCarthyism. Yeah. And they were um, hitting really hard on people in the public service and the federal public service with uh, the, uh, the national security programs. And, but these people couldn't speak. They were mute because they could not complain about uh, these things because they were government employees. And, but the Democrats were the, obviously at the time the enemies of McCurry 
And um, so that's that's one element that tells me that there's something very human about this. The other element also is that the way that the events were produced clearly had to have the military involved. You know, the, the, the strangeness of the uh, of the the objects, strangeness of the radar returns, and got the military involved, and they got a couple of uh, jets chasing these things in vain. And again, if we remember those days, uh, the ones who actually stood up in front of McCarty and brought an end to this was the military. And so it's as, it's as if the phenomenon was a way for people who couldn't speak out or press to reach out to the military and reach out to Democrats in terms of help us, help us. Um, and uh, so again, it has a lot of parallel with you know, the teenage people who have issues in their family house. And their well, tell me this. I mean, are you saying that these objects are not physical or they're not always physical? Because, I mean, there are there's a heck of a body of evidence that suggests that UFOs are physical, at least at some point. They're picked up on radar. They're seen physically with the eyes and then picked up on radar, sometimes on video. Sometimes they land and leave uh, traces. They affect plants and soil and people and things like that. I mean, they... They can be physical, even though you're saying there's a parapsychological origin. Yeah, I mean, uh, in, my, in my book, I discuss the physical aspects of UFOs, and really, the the science of it. There's a lot of things we don't know, and so I just show, as far as we know, uh, without drawing uh, definitive conclusions, because there are none. There's no definitive conclusions. What I can say is that. Uh, a lot of UFOs seems to be linked to electromagnetism in one way or another. Uh, some of the culprits, interesting culprits, uh, some uh, some author called the earth lights, so they're balls of plasma right. coming from inside the earth. And these things, uh, interestingly enough, um, you know, they are light in the sky at night, and in the day they look like uh, silvery things. And they can be detected by radar, but not visible the eyes, by the eyes. So that's certainly a class of phenomenon that would be um, uh, quite involved. The other thing also is that because they are highly charged from an electromagnetic perspective, uh, they have also the possibility of interacting with the human, human um, brain. There's been a lot of research on that, but causing hallucination or causing actually even side events, reinforcing capacity to be telepathic, for instance. So unless I don't have the answers for all the uh, the uh, the events, and I don't claim to have it in my book, but definitely anything that has to do with uh, high levels of electromagnetism seems to be directly related to uh, UFOs, as well as maybe enhancing the possibility that we have a parapsychological events as part of this, uh, these uh, balls of plasma flying around. Well, there are a lot of great UFO cases where electromagnetism plays a major part, where, uh, you know, uh, car engines are knocked out and equipment doesn't work and uh, um, navigational uh, gear uh, is uh, interfered with and planes, things of that sort. The lights go out, all, all kinds of things like that. So you're saying that that it could be a... Uh, a manifestation of parapsychology, a reaction to tension that's going on for people on the ground. Yes, absolutely. And, and uh, there's some research showing that high level of um, 
electromagnetism can induce actually altered states of consciousness so people being kind of uh in the in so they think they're seeing things in other words yeah, I'll, I'll tell you what. But they might be seeing things that are actually shared telepathically. So when we come back, I, I, I want to get into whether or not these are mutually exclusive. Whether it could be your theory, and there could actually be real visitors from somewhere else. Uh, Journey, Wheel in the Sky from 1977. Take us into the break. When the song came out in 1979, it was described as a, quote, space opera. That's Billy Thorpe, Children of the Sun. Uh, Billy Thorpe died in 2007, but that song lives on, and it's a perfect fit for this program, Coast to Coast AM. We're talking with uh, Dr. Eric Wellett about his new book, Illuminations, the UFO Experience as a Parapsychological Event. When we come back, I'm going to ask him to sort of help us put this in perspective. We'll go back to that Belgian UFO wave to explain how how that wave that was seen by thousands of people where they had uh, military jets chasing UFOs, how that might have been created sort of uh, by our own mental processes. Much more to come here on Coast to Coast AM. And at the bottom of the hour, I'll open up the phone lines. You can ask some questions as well. Eric, let's go back to the Belgian wave and help me understand this a little bit better. As I mentioned uh, a minute ago, you know, thousands of people saw these objects in the sky. They saw gigantic triangles. The Belgian Air Force picked them up on radar. They scrambled jets and chased after them. Explain to me then how this was created and what you think the psychological trigger was that caused this manifestation to appear in the skies to so many people. Well, one of the, the fascinating aspects of the Belgian wave, and it's rarely mentioned by ufologists, actually, is that it happened exactly at the same time as the Berlin Wall was falling. And all the uh, communist countries that were uh, giving away communism. But uh, it was at the time where there were still some doubts that those regimes might take the hard line and start to engage in a bloodbath. So it was happening at the same time. This is one aspect of it that I see some some very human uh, elements to it. The second one is that a lot of the uh, um, concentration of the waves were actually around uh, NATO uh, installations or the famous chase uh, was actually uh, between uh, one major NATO uh, radar station in the edge in the, in the Eastern Belgium, uh, end up uh, near the city of Mons, which is actually where the NATO headquarters is, um, all the way going south to of uh, Brussels, where again the political headquarters of NATO are. It seems that it gives the impression that uh, as if the phenomenon was trying to get the attention of NATO. Uh, at the time where the communism uh, was falling apart and then people worried on the other side of the uh, Iron Curtain that maybe uh, Soviet will intervene or their own regime, especially in East Germany, might take a hard line. So there's a lot of synchronicity with uh, and symbolism linked to the UFO wave in Belgium that gives me the impression there's something very human about it. But, I mean, the craft were detected on radar. They were seen. They were chased. Uh, are we able to, as collectively, as, as humans, a group of humans, we're able to create these things that can be physical at times? I mean, they are physical at least long enough to be detected on radar? Yeah, the thing that the UFO chase of, uh, of March 1990 is it's a strange one because uh, depending on what you 
the, there were different observation uh, systems, if I can use that word, having different uh, readings. Um, the people on the ground were, were seeing a lot of lights uh, appearing and disappearing and moving in a general direction between uh, east, on a uh, east-west axis and going to the west. Um, the uh, radar station, the ground radar station, were seeing only one object uh, going on a straight line at about the same speed uh, um, on the same axis. And then the jets uh, were chasing something that was going up and down, left and right. Um, but you couldn't see anything. There's that they had their radar, uh, onboard radars that were detecting something. And then the other element also very odd is that the, the the jet radars could not establish the distance. They, they, they were able to see something, but there was no distance between. Uh, and normally those radars can evaluate distance, and it's an important element for when you engage in, in air combat. And so some people were wondering if they were not chasing actually some sort of electromagnetic malfunctions in the radar systems. But yet, you know, the radar stations saw something and people on the ground saw something. But all these, these perceptions were different. Now, what was behind it, I don't know. And I don't speculate on what it is, but it seems that um, somehow um, we have influence these things because of uh, uh, the symbolism there is attached to this kind of going from the, the radar station to the headquarters of NATO. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's fascinating to see that there's uh, so much connections with NATO in this. I guess what I'm getting at is, is it a physical object at some point? Are you saying that UFOs, for the most part, are not physical objects? We might detect them as physical, we might think they're physical, but they're not? I think at times uh, there are physical objects of, um, of uh, Earth-like uh, natures. Other times they might be just um, mundane planes that, that somehow we, uh, we project uh, a different image of what they are. Um, and other times there's probably nothing, but we project something, again, and that is shared uh, among a number of people through non-normal means. Tell me this: Why do we see um, why do we see flying saucers or saucer-like objects, at least in our brains? Why aren't we seeing Godzilla or dragons or a giant carnivorous red blob or something like that? And why are we seeing ETs? Well, it depends who you talk to. I mean, there are people who are seeing all kinds of different things. Um, Jenny Randall wrote a wonderful book, um, Mind Monsters, and she found all kinds of different things. Uh, like a, a ninja, dwarf ninja hunting a little uh, school and stuff like that. It depends on where you put your the emphasis on on where you look and what are your belief systems. Because it's fairly, uh, some people, for instance, would see um, a ghost and think, okay, this is a, the classical description of a ghost. But if you go uh, 500 years ago, when we talk about ghosts, they have a completely different definition of what it means. So somehow we put into uh, interpretation of, of anomalies. We put a lot of ourselves in those anomalies. That doesn't mean, though, those actual anomalies are what we think they are. Yeah, you make reference in the book to uh, the work of Jacques Vallée, who wonders if maybe people reporting elves and goblins and things of that sort 
centuries ago uh, and now reporting them as aliens is just our cultural perspective that's changed that maybe it's the same thing and you reference John Keel's work as well absolutely I think I think uh, they put the finger on very important aspects of, uh, of uh, these these especially when we talk about apparitions of non uh, non-human entities uh, because uh, if you look at the entire paranormal literature not just UFOs of people seeing apparitions there are so much variety there uh, that suggests the planet would be hunted by millions of different species which kind of stretch a bit uh, my capacity to believe this but because we're all different and we all have different experiences then we project different things into what we see and uh, if there is a still that doesn't mean there's no anomalies behind but we put a lot of content into those anomalies and then we see them as such that doesn't mean that the anomalies itself is what we is necessarily what we see in reference to the Washington DC flap and again you say you suggest well maybe you know McCarthyism there was a lot of antipathy toward Washington at the time it was felt by federal employees I can't imagine that uh, anybody hated Washington more then than they do now but so you would think maybe there would be ufo flaps all the time but in, in your book you reference the work of kevin randall and and some of the writing that he has done about uh, the washington dc flap he's going to be our guest in the second half of tonight's program so i'm going to ask him about this because you you say that he prefers the et hypothesis which so many ufologists do i wonder is it mutually exclusive are you saying there cannot be uh, et visitations uh, that all of UFOs are more likely um, parapsychological in origin. Well, my book is about uh, proposing hypothesis. So, right. I'm, first of all, so I'm not declaring it the truth with the capital T. Right. <laughs> uh, that's <laughs> right. the first thing, which is sometimes missing in the ATH community. Uh, the other thing is that um, uh, the, um, the perspective of parapsychology means that we humans are causing anomalies, right? Uh, but does it mean exclude by definition the possibility that there would be external encounters? No, it doesn't. Uh, but again, this is always the same question, is that uh, uh, if, if, if we talk about um, aliens traveling in a spaceship, it's a, this is a fundamentally a materialistic hypothesis. You know, you have flesh and blood aliens, if I can use the expression, and not mm-hmm. all ships. And, so, and that hypothesis then requires a physical proof, because it's right. physical or material. And we're still looking for it. I mean, I'm talking a proof where it's transparent and open to analysis by any reputable lab that would say, yes, it's not from this earth. We haven't had it since uh, we are of an interest in these topics, so since the late 1940s and before, if you, if you, if you look at more French uh, types of people. So, again, we don't have any uh, proof, so I'm saying, okay, well, let's try something else in the meantime, and uh, that's what I'm proposing, uh, that particles you'll call a hypothesis. And, and, again, because I see a lot of similarities with lower-scale events like poltergeist. Uh, when I look at uh, larger events like UFO waves. Yeah, you mentioned about us not having physical proof about UFOs from other planets, and I I think you're absolutely right, at least nothing that's been released in the public sector to the public. But what what kind of an experiment could be done that would 
verify your hypothesis. Is there one that you have in mind? Well, it could be done, but unfortunately it would be unethical to do, but uh, because the, uh, based on, on the approach I take, you, you need people who actually really believe uh, that the event is caused by an external force because they have to displace, you know, the core issue away from what it is. Um, and then you need people in some sort of crisis. Uh, so, which is, so you have to create a false crisis, which is unethical by definition. Maybe you would have to lie to the believers, saying that this is a true event, not an experiment. Um, so, it, I, I don't see how it could be done from an experimental perspective. It can only be done after the fact, taking a real event and looking at it more carefully and from a different angle. I cannot see an experiment uh, of that nature happening. Now, there is a possibility to do a micro-experiment, a small scale. Uh, there's a famous experiment that was done in Toronto many years ago. Um, it's called the Philip experiment, where they kind of created artificially a ghost and was eventually responding by knocks to psychokinesis. But people there knew that what they were doing, and they, they truly... Uh, saw that there was their collective psyche that was creating these these knocks, and uh, I have a good friend of mine working for the good um, uh, one of the good organization about the paranormal, it's called Psycam uh, Canada, uh, that uh, really they're really thinking seriously about redoing the Philip experiment, but this time instead of creating a ghost, we would like to create an alien, and so that. Maybe there would be a, an alien uh, um, uh, apparition that would eventually occur to the uh, the, the experimenters. I wonder if there's any parapsychological wave happening right now in the Middle East where millions of refugees are streaming out of Syria and Iraq trying to get away from ISIS. They're being beheaded and tortured and killed, and they're losing their homes. A lot of a lot of stress. I would think there'd be UFOs all over the place. <laughs> Yeah, so the thing is that a lot of the stress, uh, it's, um, uh, it's as if, I mean, people know about what's going on, right? They're, so they're not muted. We know how bad it is. Oh, I see. Um, however, uh, I mean, that's depending on people's belief systems, but uh, one way to interpret the Marian operation is that in a similar way, because there was in Lebanon and in Syria, uh, a few years ago, in 2009, if I remember correctly, um, there were strange Marian apparitions that were declared because there are Christians there as well, minority. Uh, and uh, could it have been in one of those precursor signs of, of things to come? I don't know. But, uh, you know, people in the Middle East have different cultural backgrounds, so they, they tend to, uh, if, if they put Something to the paranormal would be quite different. That's what we do in North America. You had a case that you mentioned in the book that I had never read about before. At least if I read it, I don't remember it, involving the Prime Minister of Canada and his plane. Yes, yes. It was a, a mini uh, UFO wave. Uh, it was uh, flying, uh, uh, and then the, the, the pilots saw some strange UFO, um, and then that was it. But then uh, during the week that follows, there's a lot of UFOs that were seen so, um, uh, in the sky, and uh, <clears throat> which raises the question is, is whether it was just a, a small incident or, or more. 
Now, the dates, I couldn't find anything special about the dates. Was there some tension? So um, I don't know. Uh, but there were also uh, observation of a, uh, a UFO by uh, radar controllers was the exact same flight path as another plane that landed half an hour uh, after. Was it some symbolic things related to that plane or someone on board that plane, which was a different one than the Prime Minister? I don't know. But um, th th there, are some, there are things keep going on uh, that are fairly well documented, but uh, we to have the, to go to the bottom of it would require quite a bit of research in terms of finding uh, who was on the plane and was there anything special about it. So in the end, we'll probably not, not know, uh, but uh, certainly it raises questions about when there's a lot of elements that seems to, to uh, carry some symbolism like that. As you probably know, the UFO field is, uh, has been known for its resistance to new ideas. It doesn't like to be told uh, that uh, what it thinks might be wrong. And then once it gets locked into something like the ET hypothesis, it's hard to, to get beyond that. I'd be curious whether the same kind of thing exists in parapsychology circles or not. You know, uh, in UFO, in the UFO field, they don't like to get beyond, too far beyond flying saucers. You start mixing in other, uh, other paranormal topics, poltergeist or Bigfoot or where, where more than one kind of paranormal, uh, uh, entity is seen in proximity, they don't, they get uncomfortable with it. How is that, how is it, is your proposal talking about UFOs being seen in parapsychology circles or is it still too new? Uh, well, I, I, I did not get any feedback um, about my book from uh, parapsychologists not just yet. But uh, the, the Parapsychological Association, which is the main uh, scholarly society studying these things, uh, they still say they don't study UFOs. Now, there are reasons for that is that from their perspective, studying UFO means studying extraterrestrial visitation, which is not part of what they are interested in. But also the other part is that uh, even if you can make the case that this is a parapsychological event, like I do, uh, there's still a fear of being associated with uh, people in the field of ufology. And unfortunately, we have to be honest, in, the, in that field there's a lot of people who are um, saying a lot of very questionable right. things. And um, I'll pick up the conversation after the break here. That was an interesting point. This is the Shadows Apache Surf Rock Pioneers from way back in 1960. We'll open up the phone lines for a bit here when we come back, and you can ask some questions about uh, Dr. Eric, uh, Eric Wellett's uh, theory here. Stick around. I played this song a couple of months ago. Uh, I just think it's a terrific rock and roll song. It's Paul McCartney and Dave Stewart. The name of the song is Whole Life. It's uh, a great tune, but it's never appeared on a Paul McCartney album or on a Dave Stewart album. It was a for a benefit album to, for helping out uh, Nelson Mandela with some causes that he was working on, but uh, it's a good song, Whole Life it's called. We're talking with Dr. Eric Wellett about his new book, Illuminations, his theory about the parapsychological connection to UFO events. In a moment, we'll uh, hear what you have to say about that theory. We'll go to the phones and much more on Coast to Coast AM. 
before the break, Eric was explaining to us that uh, in parapsychology circles, there's resistance to anything that involves aliens or ETs. They're not really interested in pursuing all that much. And I can uh, assure him that uh, in UFO circles, it's going to be much the same. Uh, I should point out, Eric, before we go to the phone lines, you're not saying, hey, I'm right, you're wrong. There's no such thing as ET vehicles, any, nothing like that. You're just saying, here's another idea about how to look at this. Take a look sometime. It's it's kind of complicated. I, I think the book does a much better job of explaining it than I've been doing in this interview. But you're just saying, hey, this is this is my idea. Um, take a look at it, right? That's it. I, uh, it's an hypothesis, and it should be treated as such. But I give extensive explanation of why I think it has a lot of merit. But, uh, again, I'm not forcing anyone to, to uh, espouse any particular views. I'm just offering more so that at least yeah, people have more choice in terms of trying to understand uh, what's going on. Well, as you will find from our callers here, we at Coast to Coast are open-minded and we are gracious to our guests, and you're our guest tonight, so I'm anxious to hear what uh, some of our listeners have to say. Going to go to the wild card line, Bruce in Fairview, North Carolina. Hi, Bruce. Hello, George. Can you hear me? Yes. What's on your mind? Uh, I have a distant, I have an uncle named Nap, so maybe we're long lost distant cousins. Somewhere way back when, yeah. In Jersey. Uh, yeah, question, and no disrespect to you, doctor, but I disagree with you 100% as coming from somebody who has proof of supernatural experiences. And if you don't mind me asking you one personal question, that is, do you believe in God? Oh, that's a complicated question. Um, I do, but probably not in the way that most religion um, defines it, right? Because there's many ways to look at it. So that's I would say that would be my answer. More like Bruce? a pantheist. Pantheonist. Sorry. Like a pantheonist, if that's the correct terminology. Oh, I, well, I, I would say more agnostic. Agnostic, okay. True sense of the word. Okay. So, Bruce, what's your proof of uh, 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 abnormal events? What's your proof? So, uh, a couple things. Uh, I've seen uh, what you would call a devil dog, and I have someone that verified that with me. And also, I lived in a home that was built in 1743, pre-Revolutionary War, and it had spirits. And I have proof from people and other people that were there who experienced these things with me and I never let on to any of this. They they heard what I heard and looked at me like, did you hear that? And I said, yeah, I always hear that. That's the kind of proof I'm talking about. You know, nothing on paper. Well, Eric, uh, maybe you could explain to him how your theory would work in a house that uh, people think is haunted. Okay, uh, haunting is a bit different from poltergeist, so uh, and uh, so there's a bit of differences here. Um, but again, this uh, this is this notion that uh, if there are something producing an anomaly, whatever it is, some sort of uh, uh, forms of electromagnetism, that has been found in a lot of haunted houses. That there's uh, sources, abnormal sources. Of it, uh, and then uh, there is a possibility. But I'm not uh, invalidating your experience, but in any ways, or shape, or form, I'm just telling you that this other uh, hypothesis or possible explanation. And one of them is that people are, are sharing um, 
events through uh, telepathy, for instance, uh, because there's this uh, side of resonance is very strong. And uh, this, this happens in situations where some people see something and others don't, will not see the same thing, and then four people will see the same thing, and next time only one. So, uh, so there's a number of cases of haunting that are more complex and uh, the so again, I don't know your personal case, so I won't I won't make any judgment to it. But certainly, hauntings are more complicated than the, the usually what people think because it's not they're not that straightforward. I'll give you a very personal example of uh, I have seen some, not actually seen but heard something, steps, and um, <clears throat> I was convinced there was someone coming, and then I talked to the other people, and they didn't hear anything. And then, they, then we went on, on the uh, hunting investigation, and I was discussing with the the caretaker. Um, that that was one of the things that uh, was often heard. So the question is, is that uh, did I hear something that was actually external, or is just that my mind triggered that sign, that energy, and I heard something, but actually there was no noise. It's just it was my my. Uh, my psyche that was connecting directly with that information, as I discussed in the beginning of the show. That's a different explanation, and again, it's no judgment on, on yours. Uh, it's just saying that there's alternative ways to look at it. Thanks, Bruce. And, uh, you know, as we didn't get into this in the book, but there's a time element, too, is that sometimes you think that maybe people are seeing things that have not happened yet. That uh that's true. I mean, we uh, one one of the things is that there seems to be also uh, premonitions related to UFO events. I can, uh, if I have time, just give a quick one. Uh, the UFO wave of 1954 in France happened at the very same time as the uh, insurgent in Algeria were starting to get organized. And but there was no public sign of that. It took several months before it gets public, and it seems that. And the, the, the peak of the wake happened exactly at that same time that the, the insurgents were getting organized. And the war in Algeria for France it was like Vietnam times 10 because they had a million refugees going to France afterwards. So was it the premonition of a big uh, crisis for France? I don't know, but it, it, at least it's one way to look at it. Let's try the first-time caller line, Nathan, in Middletown, Ohio. Hi, Nathan. Welcome to Coast to Coast. Hi, George. Um, my question is about alien abduction and whether or not his hypothesis uh, covers that too, or is that not something he's ever looked into? All right. Uh, yes, I did look into it. I have a chapter on uh, looking at the uh, Barney and Betty Hill case, uh, and I another chapter that talks about. Uh, I would say the the general tendency of the, having these types of experiences that are reported. And um, what I found truly animalistic is, is that these people having very similar experiences, uh, but in the end, the content of their experience seems to be, in a way, uh, at least the first few people had those experiences, seems to be uh, uh, predictive or premonition of things to come. Uh, in the case of Benny, uh, Betty and Barney, uh, it seems to be linked to actually the civil rights movement, issues that were 
ongoing at that time. And the more the general wave of alien abduction, which kind of Betty and Barney started, uh, I mean, their story was one of the first. It seems to be linked also to to social changes in the United States and, and the Western world in general, but in the United States in particular, where um, the um, a lot of those experiences seems to be linked to human reproductive system and sexuality. And and a few years after the first cases emerged, it was we were in full blown. Uh, feminism movement where women asking and taking wanted to take control of their own reproductive means. It says if somehow we had a one large collective dreams with very very vivid and, and spread across many people across the country that seems to foresee things around this issue of reproduction and sexuality. Again. This is a kind of interpretation, but it, it seems to connect with larger social events. Thanks, Nathan. We're going to try uh, east of the Rockies, Mike in West Palm Beach, Florida. Hi, Mike. You're on with Eric, and this is Coast to Coast. Hey, how you doing? How are right. you? Yeah, hi. Uh, I totally agree with your thesis that mass hysteria uh, is the issue here, but it's not poltergeist. It's not ETs. It's the government itself that's creating the hysteria. And I like your analogy with 1952, but you're looking at it the wrong way. 1952 was a very bad year here in America. We were losing the Korean War. It was an election year. There was a lot of dissension. The government had to distract the people from the craziness that was going on with Korea. Go to Vietnam, same thing there, too. We were losing that war every day. So the government had to create an hysteria to try to deflect from what's going on. Of course, they're backed by Hollywood, which produces hundreds of thousands of films about aliens. Now, about the E.T. thing, from the way I see it, up to 1947, when the first modern UFOs were seen, in squadron formation in Seattle, very famous incident, dozens of these things flying, squadron formation. Yeah, I'm in the phone. Now, the, uh, before 1947, uh, UFOs, were seen very rarely, maybe once every 10 years or 100 years. In the Bible, for example, there's maybe a couple incidents like Ezekiel uh, talking about that. But starting in 1947, we start manufacturing these things, knockoff versions of it, whatever it is, and the government's building these things. And they're behind this, and it's a whole purpose backed by Hollywood and its films and the rest is to get the people's minds off two very bad wars. Career in Vietnam. Okay, Mike, we, we got the thesis. I'm going to let uh, Eric respond. We got the idea. Eric, uh, you want to jump into that? Well, what I can say is that um, the government, at least in the 50s, uh, the, the attitude of, of the people in, in position of authority, I would agree, didn't like having civilians to report constantly to the military, you know, I see things, uh, strange things in the sky. And the, the reaction was one of clamping down, um, and there's no doubts about that. But because they were, uh, and also it was the height of the Cold War, so people were very paranoid about what the Russians would do, and probably I, I'm pretty sure they were worried about the fact that they would, the Russians would use the UFO phenomenon as a cover for air attack. I mean, you have to remember in the 1950s, their perspectives were different. So by clamping down, and then by doing so, opening the, the when, when you start 
stop talking, then people start to worry about what people are doing and thinking. And a lot of conspiracy theories that emerge were just because the government stopped talking, but doesn't mean the content was necessarily true. But when you climb down, you create people wondering what's going on. And by doing so, it just reinforced the fact that these phenomena uh, are, are, are really strange and need further explanation, which actually encourage people to look more and more and more and dig deeper. So I, I would agree and disagree with you. I would agree that the government's reaction uh, didn't help their own cause, but it definitely encouraged people to, to be more suspicious, which was very unfortunate. Uh, and other countries having a more open attitude, they didn't have these problems. But the United States and Canada, for that matter, is the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would uh, also add this. Area 51 is an example. You know, if you're told you can see a base, there's a military base in the middle of the desert, they're flying really interesting things out of there, and yet the government says, I know you see this base, but it doesn't exist. There's nothing there. Well, of course, how, how are people going to react? Their curiosity is up. Um, it's, it's especially true if they think there's flying saucers uh, uh, emanating from that base. And if the government wanted to keep a secret place, it really screwed up uh, if it created uh, the, the myth that there are flying saucer-like uh, craft zipping around out there. Uh, the same I was also going to mention uh, in the beginning of our interview is that, you know, UFO enthusiasts have their own views, the conspiracy theories about government cover-ups and things of that sort, what the government really thinks behind closed doors. We know from documents that were released from the government, forced uh, release from the government through the Freedom of Information Act, that uh, that the, behind closed doors they took this topic very seriously. And it's the government and military who first suggested the idea that these craft that they were seeing in the sky were from other planets. Now, you've read some of those documents, haven't you, Eric? Yes, yes. I mean, there was an early uh, hypothesis they were looking into because there were, uh, like most of us, they, they, they saw something they could not explain in spite of their best uh, efforts. And so they looked into some hypotheses, and one of them was maybe they're coming from uh, you know, another world. But I, pretty clearly they came to the conclusion that it's very unlikely. There's something else going on. Uh, but that, because again, like I said at the beginning of the show, because it's not that dangerous, then they kind of uh, uh, let this. Uh, their interest in, the, in these things kind of decline very quickly afterward. And then, uh, if you look about the the, the condom report and then uh, all these events that happened, they just wanted to get rid of this file and just give it to civilians uh, through the blue book, you know, publishing the blue book blue book um, cases and uh, just get rid of it so because you know there's there's nothing for them to do of, uh, of use with it that's well that's I'm, what I I'm, I'm sure you're right about that part that they'd like to get rid of it and like it to go away try to get one more quick call in uh, on the wild card line Sean in Farmington Missouri Sean better make it a quick one okay uh, hi George um, I was wanting to ask him about does he believe in any physical Alien craft uh, being able to be seen by the human eye? Well, the thing is I don't really use the word belief. If I'm quite open for anyone to bring, you know, transparent and open proof for it, and I will be the first one to embrace it. But so far, 
we have nothing. So, so that's that's why I, I think it's important to have other expertises on the table, because until we get uh, physical proof, then there's no proof. Thanks, Sean. Appreciate it. Eric, how are how are things where you work? Has has this book uh, filtered out? Did they know you've written it? Oh yeah, it's on my door, and uh, even this interview, uh, you know, I have to to let them know I do an interview. I mean, uh, they don't uh, they gotta prevent me to do it, but just out of courtesy, I let them know. And uh, there's a link uh, on my email to uh, to the the store that sells it, and uh, I've not seen nothing. Honestly, it's uh, one of in my book I refers to. Uh, Institutional indifference is true. Uh, there's, uh, I could have published some um, book on the history of a long gone conflict in 1822 somewhere in South America, and that would have the same impact. So there's the interest in UFOs in the military is very very little. Uh, institutionally, there's none, and individually, some people may have an interest, but nothing of, uh, of nothing major there. Yeah, you mentioned in the book uh, John Alexander, Colonel John Alexander had written a book that had the same sort of a premise in that Colonel Alexander had gone through and tried to look for what agency would have the UFO files, who's the keeper of the secrets, and he basically figured, uh, you know, A, there is no mass government entity, it's not just one, it doesn't move as a monolithic organization, there are multiple sub-departments, and, and B, he could find no place that uh, was, where UFOs really was a, a high priority. His theory, and I think it's shared by a lot of people, is that whatever studies go on, it's been taken outside the purview of government uh, by design, and, and I think you sort of reached the same conclusion. Dr. Eric Willett, uh, thank you for being here. The book is called Illuminations, the UFO Experience. A parapsychological event. It's a lot to chew on, folks, and I know uh, some of you are having trouble getting your head around it, but it's really interesting read. You should check it out. Eric, thanks for being with us. Thank you very much. All right, coming up next, Kevin Randall uh, jumps into 100 years of conspiracies and cover-ups. Stick around. Much more to come here on Coast to Coast AM. Back when this song was first recorded, the group was known as Chad Allen and the Expressions. You know them better as Guess Who? The song is shaken all over from 1965. It doesn't even sound like the Guess Who we know. It's a great tune, though. We shift gears now to welcome Kevin Randall to the program. His new book, The UFO Dossier, 100 Years of Government Secrets, Conspiracies, and Cover-Ups, is kind of a culmination of 45 years that Kevin has devoted to studying the UFO topic. I want to ask him what he thought about our first guest and the theory that was advanced over the last two hours, and then we'll look at take a fresh look at uh, some cases that you and I know pretty well. Much more to come here on Coast to Coast AM. Welcome back. Kevin Randall has uh, spent 45 years studying the UFO phenomenon and its various incarnations. He's uh, had training from the Army and Air Force, and that's given him a unique insight into the operations and protocols of the military and how they might investigate UFOs, a phenomena that's puzzled people for a long time. His new book, The UFO Dossier, 100 Years of Government Secrets, Conspiracies, and Cover-Ups, gives a new perspective, a fresh perspective, on some cases that you think you know, but maybe you don't. Kevin, welcome back to the program. Well, thank you, George. Glad to be here. 
You know, uh, the fact that you are such a meticulous researcher has gotten you into a variety of scrapes and beefs over the years, with, and we're going to go over some of them. Um, yes, I have. <laughs> um, but let's start with uh, what, the, what we just heard. Now, not, not Eric is not here anymore to defend himself, but he specifically references your work in, the, in dissecting the Washington uh, UFO flap of 1952, uh, and and uh, mentions that you're a defender of the ET hypothesis and his idea that maybe parapsychology is another way to look at it. What's your general take? I think if we look at the evidence from the 1952 sightings, we have the manifestations on radar. We have uh, jet fighters being scrambled, the pilots seeing the things, uh, other pilots and commercial airliners seeing things, uh, people on the ground seeing things who are not in communication with one another. Uh, we see the fighters sometimes getting lock-ons on the objects as well. So we have, you might, you might say, uh, multiple chains of evidence that suggest something of a more physical manifestation. I, I'm not sure how we get from uh, a parapsychological outlook or imagination into something that is physically present and detectable by instrumentality. But I also realize that, that when we look at the entirety of the UFO phenomena, there's not a single answer that explains everything. We have to look at a variety of explanations, and sometimes uh, Venus is really the culprit. Sometimes they're really weather balloons, and sometimes there may be a, a parapsychological manifestation that would account for the sightings. How comfortable are you in general in dealing with stuff that falls out of the ET sort of uh, model? Um, you know, some of the UFO cases get pretty strange, and they do blend into almost poltergeist-type activity. Sometimes there's sightings of Bigfoot-type events. Those kinds of things make uh, nuts and bolts um, UFO researchers uncomfortable at times. I want to know how you are with that. I'm not uncomfortable with it, but I don't see a connection to some of these things. I don't really see a connection between Bigfoot and UFOs. And, yes, I know there are people who claim to have seen Bigfoot coming out of UFOs or retreating to UFOs, that sort of thing. But I look at all the sub-genres, if you will, of the UFO phenomenon. The crop circles fall into that. The abductions fall into that. Crash retrievals fall into that. Uh, uh, you know, a subgenre of, of UFOs, and they don't really make me uncomfortable, but I sometimes don't pay a lot of attention to them because my focus is more narrowly defined than to spread it out into a, a lot of different arenas. And I think to understand the totality of the phenomenon, you almost have to focus on a small part of it. Yeah, there's enough to keep you busy. Uh, uh, oh, yeah. Um, the new book, of course, the sub-topic, uh, uh, the headline, 100 Years of Government Secrets, Conspiracies, and Cover-Ups, leads me into sort of the opening of what I'd like to talk about, and it flows from what our first guest discussed. He, he had the opinion in speaking to military colleagues in Canada that the government in general is not interested in the subject, that the military is not, that they concluded a long time ago that whatever it is, it's not really a threat to us, and they want uh, civilians to handle the research. I don't know. What's your take on that now? I mean, that might be true in the U.S. military now, that in general, that, uh, in general, as an organization, the Pentagon doesn't really pay that much attention to UFOs anymore. Well, you can look at the compartmentalization of, of the Pentagon, for example, and say, well, uh, this area of it isn't really interested in how 
to, to what, what are the advances in artillery or what are the advances in aviation. So you, you can look at it from that point of view. But I, I think what, what we, we need to look at is that there has been a number of studies of UFOs, and a lot of it has been more public relations than actual scientific endeavor, and the attempts are to create this idea that there's nothing to the UFO phenomenon, therefore there's no reason to pay attention to it, but there's somebody, somebody paying attention to it. After the closure of Blue Book in 1969, for example, they said, well, we don't study UFOs anymore. But what we learned is there was a project called Moondust, and Moondust had a UFO component. So while the Air Force could say, we closed Project Blue Book, we're not looking at UFOs, now we look at Moondust, and that has a UFO component to it. So they were studying UFOs. And in 1985, when the name was compromised, the State Department released a bunch of documents, I think it was to Robert Todd, that had moon dust on it. They began, we began asking questions about moon dust. When I was researching government UFO files, which is the book that precedes the UFO dossier, they, you know, it, it, the UFO dossier is sort of a, 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 a worldwide view where the UFO government files is a, a narrowed American view. But as I was researching that book, I was looking for some stuff in the Project Blue Book files, the microfilms, and I was scanning by, and the, the words moon dust caught my attention. So I stopped, and in 1960, there were like four cases that are part of Project Blue Book that are, labeled, that are literally labeled moon dust. So we know there's a UFO component about it. We know the Air Force was involved in the investigation because it's in their files. Uh, so we see that there was an ongoing investigation beyond Project Blue Book, and when the name was compromised and people tried to get the, name, the new name of the project, uh, they were told that the name is now properly classified. So they didn't say Moondust doesn't exist anymore. What they said was the name is properly classified. And, in fact, uh, U.S. Senator Jeff Bingaman from New Mexico had queried the Air Force about Project Moondust, and their first response was there's no such project. And when they were shown the documents from the State Department, I mean, there's a great bunch of documents with a proper provenance, to prove that these come from the, came from the government, they said, well, we'd like to amend our last statement, which is, of course, there was a Project Moondust, but we never used it. Well, we can prove that it was actually used a number of times as well. So we see, you, you talk about, well, there's no cover-up. Well, then what's going on here? Why are they, they saying, well, we've, we've stopped UFO investigations, and yet the investigations continue on, uh, at least through 1985, when was the last time we, we knew the name of the project? This whole idea about national security, it, UFOs are not a threat to national security. That's what they used when they canceled Blue Book. And, of course, I mentioned uh, in speaking with Eric in the last hour the Bolander memo, which, you know, said, okay, national security cases will go the same place they've always gone. I don't know if that meant moon dust or it meant somewhere else, but uh, that there are cases where national security is clearly involved. Uh, those uh, overflights at the nuclear missile bases was the example, but there are a lot of other ones, are there not? Well, there, there certainly are, and I, I think we need to kind of explore the things that went on at Maelstrom Air Force Base in the late 1960s, which clearly was a matter of national security. And it, it, the, the sightings took place during the Condon Committee investigation, so they, they're looking into the sightings around Belt, Montana at the time. And interestingly, the UFO officer for Maelstrom Air Force Base was a lieutenant colonel named uh, Lewis Chase, He's the guy that was piloting the RB-47 from the 1957 case, the RB-47 case, which an awful lot of ufologists like as a really good case. 
So he's the guy that was involved in that. Now, he's a UFO officer at Maelstrom Air Force Base. The Condon Committee had a number of people who had security clearances. They were allowed to see the classified Project Blue Book documents. When the guy got to Maelstrom Air Force Base and he's talking to Chase, uh, Lewis Chase about this, Lewis Chase told him, I can't tell you about that. You don't have the proper clearances. So here is a series of sightings in Montana going on at the time of the Condon Committee, and the guys investigating with the Condon Committee do not have the proper clearances to know what had happened at Maelstrom because it was, in fact, a matter of national security. You know, I, I give our last guest credit for, you know, the importance of having fresh eyes and fresh, fresh perspective. That's very important in, uh, in pursuing something as strange and, uh, uh, and as uh, elusive as the UFO topic. And that's sort of what you do in this new book, the UFO Dossier. It's, it's as if you went 50,000 feet to look at it from a much broader perspective, not just the American cases that you have focused on in a lot of your previous writings, but the whole world. I mean, that's what you're shooting for, right? A fresh perspective? Absolutely. And I wanted to look at why is it that we can look at the UFO phenomenon and say, well, they don't have these problems in other areas of the world, or the U.S. is the U.S. government suppressing the information. And there's a really interesting study that took place in Australia, and it began because an Australian government official was asked to look at UFOs, and he quoted heavily from Donald Kehoe's books in the 1950s. The Royal Australian Air Force quite naturally contacted the United States Air Force and said, what do you think about this Kehoe guy? And, of course, they smeared him and said, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's making this stuff up. He doesn't have the access to the government documents that he claims to have had. When we move beyond that, we're now way down that road. What we find out was Kehoe actually did have access to the documents. He did have the access to the inside information. Most of what he said in his books was true. But the, the U.S. Air Force was saying, no, you can't believe this guy. So the Royal Australian Air Force, of course, says, well, there's nothing to this phenomenon. The guy you cite and the cases you cite don't exist, and we're not going to do a whole lot with it. So you look at the Australian perspective, and they're looking at UFO sightings in Australia, but they're also coming at it from the point of view that there's really nothing to this sort of thing. What is your take on the uh, current state of, well, I'm using air quotes around it, cover-up, uh, in particular in relationship to other countries? You know, when the topic of, for example, disclosure comes up and people are saying any day now, you know, the disclosure, they're going to open up the files and, and admit what they know, which I, I, I think was never going to happen. But then they will, their rejoinder is, well, maybe some other country will release the information and I just suspect that there's a lot of pressure from the U.S. on places like the U.K. and Australia and allies, Canada, that uh, we all have to be in lockstep on this kind of thing. But it makes you wonder why countries that are opposed to us, that are want to tweak our noses, why some of them don't release information. I think we have to look at it from a couple of different perspectives. And one of is, of course, we're, we supply or put pressure on these people not to go, not to. Uh, release the information they have, and I, and I agree with you. I don't think disclosure is going to happen because there's no motivation for the governments to come clean with this sort of thing. They have no real need to do that. We'll get disclosure when one lands at the uh, Pentagon or lands at the White House and says, here we are, and there's no way to cover that up or hide that information. But I think the other side of the coin is the United States, and I, you know, here we've become very American-centric again, probably has the best evidence for uh, alien visitation, and 
if Roswell was in fact alien, then we've got the answers. And I, I think there are very few legitimate UFO crashes or events like that around the world. Uh, Shag Harbor comes to mind, but the United States was involved with that, and, and I think there was pressure put on the Canadians. But there was nothing really recovered there because the UFO you know, fell into the ocean or fell into the water in Shag Harbor and eventually escaped. So I think one of the problems is the best evidence is in the hands of the United States, and other governments that, are, that have sort of a, a working relationship with the United States are probably pressured not to let that information out. And I think the other thing we have to look at is that in today's world, uh, if we're being visited by aliens, is not as pressing as the other problems in the world. It, you know, the the uh, refugee problem, immigration problem in, in Europe, for example, takes precedence over worrying about aliens who haven't done anything in the last 50 or 60 or 70 years when they've been here. We don't need to worry about that. We need to deal with this problem, which affects our countries right now, this minute. Here you look at it like somebody like North Korea, if they had information and they wanted to tweak our nose, they're certainly no friend of ours, why wouldn't they do it? Or say, until very recently, the Cubans. It's the kind of thing the Cubans might do. But in, in reality, unless it comes from the U.S. government, and I'm not being too provincial here, unless it comes from Washington, I don't, just don't know how much impact it would have. There have been sort of government rela uh, releases of information. I think Grenada, 